Hi everybody, it's Wong Hughes. Hope you're all doing really super well out there. And it is Saturday night, February... What is it? Yeah, the 12th year 2011. We'll be getting to Patricia here really soon. Now, next weekend I will be completely gone. I'll be on a Bennett trip. So I will not be around Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night. So just put that in your calendar. But first, let's say a prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this radio station, for all the listeners and the supporters of the station, and thank you for letting us do your will. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Okay, let's go ahead and get Patricia on. smiled at me in my dreams last night. My dreams are getting better all the time. And what do you know? He smiled at me in a different light. My dreams are getting better all the time. To think that we were strangers a couple of nights ago. And though it's a dream, I never dreamed he'd ever say hello. Oh, maybe tonight I hold him tight when the moon beams shine. My dreams are getting better all the time.
Now here's a story with a moral. All you girls should pay some mind. When you find a man worth keeping, be satisfied. Make sure to treat him kind. Cause a good man is hard to find. You can always get the other kind. Me. When you think you got a pal, you can find him messing around. Another gal, then you rave. You'll even start to crave to see him laying deep down in his grave. So if your man is nice, baby, take my advice. You'd better hug him in the morning. Kiss him every night. Give him plenty loving. Treat him right. Cause a good man nowadays is hard to find. Now I got a chick. A chick? Yeah. About six foot two. Man, that's tall. She never thought a midget like me would do. One fine day, she met some other cat. He took all the money, they left the flat. She's no good, no good. Now she's calling me back on the phone. She says, baby, you better come on home, I'm all alone. But if I'm gonna go back to her grass shack, she's gotta hug me in the morning, kiss me every night, give me plenty loving, treat me right. I call the good man, nowadays it's hard to find. I went back. You returned? Yeah. But I tore that gal in how. I said, then was them, woman. Now it's now. If you want me to stay, there's just one but. Get a smile on your face and keep your big mouth shut. Now we're back together. Everything's fine. I run a house, Jack. She better not step out of line. Now she knows what to do. When the day is through, she's got to hug me in the a.m., kiss me in the p.m., give me plenty loving with all her might, cause the good man nowadays is hard to find. Thank you. 
know. We need a hit, so here I go. Ball one. Hey! Ball two. Rush Brown and Wee Bonnie, no, 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 that's Betty Bonnie, 1941, Joe, Joe DiMaggio, and Patricia, take it away. Hello, Walden, and hi, Mr. Schultz. We have a guest tonight, everybody. We've been telling you about this for a couple of weeks, and I hope you're all in your places with bright, shiny faces and some questions. We have Mr. Claire Schultz with us. Mr. Schultz is author of Super McGee and Molly on the Air, 1935-1959. This is a book I reference so many times during the regular show. I'll, I'll sit here and say, oh, wait a minute. Let me let me go look in, in my Claire Schultz book. So your name, Mr. Schultz, is very familiar to our folks here. The book was published by Bear Manor Media, and you can find it at bearmanormedia.com. We'll talk a little bit about that um, later on. But before we even get any further, we have the call line open, so when you have a question, please give us a call and ask Mr. Schultz your question about Fibber McGee and Molly, 714-545-2071. And Mr. Schultz, I want to give you a proper introduction, and I want to make sure that I don't miss anything up here, so you tell me if I'm telling all of this is true and if I left anything out. Radio and film historian... I know that's true because I've got your other book here, and we're going to talk about that later. Teacher, librarian, former archives director at the Museum of Broadcast Communications, writer, and a cartoonist. I love the cartoons that you put in the Fibber McGee and Molly on the air book. What did I forget? I think that's, that covers it quite a bit. Uh, did you mention librarian? I did. Okay. I did, uh, and um, uh, the archivist at the uh, and director of um, the archives director at the Museum of Broadcast Communications is something that just made me say, "Oh gosh, this is cool." Um, maybe when we get finished, you might have a couple of minutes and and talk with me about that a little bit. I could. I could. It's it's kind of in the past now, but. Um, we certainly could bring that up. That, that would be great. One thing I need to uh, mention to our listeners is that we've got an unusual phone connection tonight, so there's going to be a little bit of a delay between the end of my question or the end of a comment or question from Walden and Mr. Schultz's answer. So don't go away. We're going to have a little bit of dead air in there, but that's cool. That's exactly what's supposed to be happening. Um, would you like to give uh, an overview or a snapshot of the book itself before we get into our questions? Well, we can talk um, a little bit about it. Um, the book is basically a episode-by-episode log of all the extant Fibber McGee and Molly episodes arranged chronologically, giving date, title, cast members, 
summary, the musical contributions, the running gags, and the comments. I also include at the front an introduction to the show and a little overview of the history of the show. And in the back is a alphabetical index of all of the shows episode by episode and also one of the appendices lists guest appearances that Jim and Marion did on other shows and there's also a little bibliography at the end for further reading. The book was published in 2008 by Bear Manor. Is this a book that they can get through you as well? They or is this one strictly through Bear Manor Media? They could also order copies from me if they wish. They can also order through Amazon and Books a Million and other online vendors such as that. Okay. Okay, that's good to know. I've, I have been giving out Bear Manor Media exclusively and uh, never thought to even suggest that there might be elsewhere as well. At the end, we're going to be talking about your most recent book, On the Screen, On the Air, On My Mind, which, if purchased through you, comes with an extra surprise. So we'll talk about that when we get through, through to the end. Um, I, I would, when we, before we get into the show and the characters and Jim and Mary and Jordan, um, first, could you talk about your involvement in old-time radio? how you got sparked into an interest, and how did you wind up concentrating on Super McGee and Molly for this particular book? I'm one of these individuals who are old enough to remember old-time radio when it was still new-time radio. I remember listening to uh, episodes in the early 50s of Fibber McGee and Molly and some other radio programs, but like so many people, when old-time radio disappeared from the radio dials, I kind of became more interested in television until about the mid-70s when I became kind of disenchanted with television. I started to listen to a number of these programs that were playing the old-time radio programs, much like this program that you play. And I started to collect shows, and before long I discovered I had more Fibber, McGee, and Molly episodes than any of the other episodes, and I guess it was because it became my favorite program, not just with Fibber and Molly, but I became enchanted once again with the characters of the old-timer and Latrivia and Gildersleeve and Wallace Wimple. And as I would listen to the shows, not just with Fibber, McGee, and Molly and other programs, it, certain topics would occur to me, so I started writing articles for Old Time Radio Digest and Nostalgia Digest on various radio programs, and I would always listen to my radio shows consecutively, and about every two years, I'd listen to all my Fibber, McGee, and Molly episodes, and as I was listening to them in 2006 and starting to take some notes, it occurred to me that nobody had ever done an episode-by-episode episode study of Fibber and Molly from the shows themselves. Tom Price's book, Fibber McGee's Closet, was based basically on the scripts of Jim Jordan. He went through all the scripts and would list the people who had appeared in musical 
selections, but it was basically a, a tabulated list. And in 1987, the same year that book came out, Tom Price and Charles Stump put out a book called Heavenly Days, which was basically an overview of Jim and Marion's life and their careers and little character studies of the various people who appeared on the show, but still nobody had done that episode-by-episode episode study. And so in 2006, as I was starting to listen to the show and take notes, the thought suddenly occurred to me, if not me, maybe it'll never get done. So I decided to go through the episodes and list the characters and the situations and the running gags and then I presented the idea to Ben Omart of Bear Media uh, for a book, and he agreed it would be a good idea, and so in 2008, the book was published. Well, it is great fun to go through, not only because of all the information in it. I mean, I sound so smart. You helped me make sound so smart. Somebody will mention, I was like, oh, it's right here. <laughs> I've got the answer right here. But you really did do a wonderful intro and um, an overview of the book that gave such great information. And last week I mentioned on the air and asked people if they could name as many as they could, I, I said you had listed out 16 of the running gags. And they did a fairly good job of getting them, but you still had some in there that they, that they had missed. So that, that was good fun as well. Tell me what set Fibber McGee and Molly apart from other long-running shows. I think it's the same thing that sets great movies apart from many other movies. When you think of great movies like Citizen Kane and Casablanca, you think of two things really, great writing and a great cast. And that's, to me, what separates Fibber and Molly and Jack Benny and a few of the other shows from so many of the other programs. The great writing of of Don Quinn and Phil Leslie, and the great cast of Jim and Mary and Jordan, and their great supporting cast of Bill Thompson, Gail Gordon, Arthur Q. Bryan, Isabel Randolph, Hal Perry, and the others. To me, when I listen to those episodes, Jim and Marion come across completely believable as their characters. When you listen to Fibber in one episode, he could be at the beginning of the show upset over a bill, and he could be affectionate toward Molly, and a little later he could be impatient with Harlow, and then he could be playful with the old-timer, exasperated when Teeny shows up, rude with Mrs. Uppington, and then when he's reminiscing about his days in vaudeville with Fred Nittany, he could be in a very wistful mood, and yet he'd be totally believable in each one of those roles. When Marion, as Molly, would say, taint funny, McGee, or heavenly days, or act totally surprised or shocked, 
She seemed totally believable. When she would play the part of Teenie in a voice that was completely different from her regular voice, she was totally believable as this little mischievous, wise beyond her year youngster who would drive Fibber up the wall. But more so than that, behind those characters of Fibber and Molly, Jim and Mary and Jordan came across as genuine people that Americans could identify with because they came across as John and Jane Doe. In the heartfelt messages they delivered on behalf of World War II causes and charities, and whenever they came to the, I guess we might call it the, the footlights at the end of the show and spoke to us, they really sounded like the kind of people we would like living next door to us. I think we came to look forward to those visitors, like Latrivia and the Old Timer and Wimple and Mrs. Uppington and Mrs. Carstairs and all of the others who came through their front door, that front door of 79 Wistful Vista. We tended to look forward to for that whole mood when he would say, Fibber McGee and Molly, join us in a moment. And at the end of the show, he would say to us, join us again next week, won't you? That was a personal invitation, like we had been invited into their living room, just like we had invited them into our living room. Mm -hmm. The whole show had a completely different aura than so many other shows generated. And so I think that's what, to me, set the show apart from many of the other long-running shows. I get a sense of time and place when I listen to that show that is missing from most of the other shows I listen to. Yes. Yes. He, Quinn was able to, to capture a sense of, of time, not just of the... 1940s or the 1950s, but also the seasons of the year. And I'd like to touch on that later when we get to the near the end of our our conversation. But it was it was a completely different feeling that you get than when you would listen to, say, the Life of Riley or the Jack Benny Show or Bob Hope Show or even the ones that were totally situation comedies. Even when you listen to Father Knows Best, at the end of that show you would have the feeling that the show was just winding up. Uh, you never had the feeling that Robert Young was stepping ahead to the microphone and saying, friends, this has really been a wonderful experience and we welcome you back next week. And it's not because Robert Young or any of the other stars were necessarily cold toward their audience. They just didn't convey this personal warmth that Jim and Marion did. Mm -hmm. And that translated to the characters. Walden asked an interesting question one night. What, in your mind, does the McGee house look like? And all of us had a different answer. And that's part of the magic of radio. Mm -hmm. That is one reason why I did not and have not looked at 
look who's laughing and here we go again. Because I don't want to see their living room. Because I have a picture of it in my mind. And in, in, very often when you see something on television, it's completely different. I don't know if, if anybody can picture Jack Benny's vault on a s screen or on a set the way it is in our imagination. And if we see it, it can't capture the same atmosphere that we have when we think of the, the drawbridge being lowered and the crocodiles and the picture we have of him going into that is not the same when you actually see it. Uh-huh. So whatever picture we have of, of where the closet is and where the front door is, my picture of the closet uh, and the, the front door may be completely different than what, what your, yours might be. Mm-hmm. Understood. And I understand what you're telling me about the movies. I watched the Fibber McGee and Molly movies and came away disappointed because nothing matched what I had in my head. Understandable. Can you talk with me for a little bit about the evolution of the show that started with, uh, it, it was almost vaudevillian in the beginning, and it was very hard, it's still very hard for me to listen to those early shows because they're not the characters I love and um, seem warm and fuzzy to me. Tell me about the evolution. I think that's true with many shows that started in the 1930s. When I listen to some of those early Jack Benny shows from the early 30s, they don't have anything at all like the flavor of the shows from the golden era for Jack Benny when he would have the cast coming to his home uh, or the Phil Harris and Dennis Day exchanges or the Ronald Coleman's or the railroad station, or all those other great episodes that came in in the 40s. It seemed almost like, and it was also true with Burns and Allen with their early broadcasts, like they were almost doing uh, a, a stage show where they were almost on stage as opposed to doing a radio show that you were pictured people actually being in somebody's home. They were working out the kinks, and I think the, the kinks were being worked out on Fibber and Molly as well. They started out as, as nomads. They didn't have a home, which worked well for the product for Johnson's Wax because as they would go from place to place, Harlow Wilcox could show up and they could work in all sorts of car new commercials and, and things such as that for, for the automobiles. But the character of Fibber and Molly in those early years, or those probably 1935 the best example of that. Fibber was almost like a country bumpkin telling these long involved stories that were appropriate for somebody named Fibber, whereas Molly was kind of like a shrewish fishwife with a, a brogue. She would harangue her husband more than help him. And I think some of that was an outgrowth of how husbands and wives were portrayed in minstrel shows and on vaudeville stages. That's the way that people got laughs with kind of broad comedy like that. Fibber McGee, you know, she would bark at him. And in one way, 
during Marion's absence, it was a good thing for Fibber to, it was a good growing experience for him because as he played off the other characters, he naturally grew into a more lovable kind of character. And I, when she came back in April of 1939, the contrast between the two on that one episode is, is fairly remarkable. She's still playing the shrew, even though it's, it's been dulled a little bit. But Fibber was the natural, hail fellow, well-met fellow that we had come to know and we come to love by that time. But by the 1939-40 season, by that next fall, they were both really in the characters that we, we really came to like. And I, I almost think that if they had stayed in that character, I really wonder if that show would have lasted. How lovable were Fibber and Molly in those early episodes? Uh, not terribly lovable. But lots of characters evolve. When you think about uh, Harold Perry's role as Gildersleeve, he was a blustery, unlikable neighbor on Fibber and Molly. But when he switched over to his own show, he became a much more lovable character, probably because he had more responsibility as being uh, uncle to Marjorie and Leroy. He became a family man as opposed to uh, the, the neighbor with the lawnmower next door. That's right. That's right. And, and more, more than one dimensional. His, his purpose really on Fibber and Molly was to blow his short fuse. <laughs> he did that well. <laughs> and, and the show you could see was evolving uh, even in 1937 when Hal Perry and Bill Thompson first made his appearance as the old timer and Isabel Randolph made her first appearance as Mrs. Uppington. And then in 38, the first Mert gag. In 38 also, that was the first, that ain't the way I heard it from the old timer. In 1939, the cigar routine came in for the first time. Gail Gordon first came on board at the end of 39, even though he wasn't uh, playing the trivia yet. The Hall Closet in early 1940, around in March 5th of that year. So you could see how the pieces were being put together. And by the time the 1940s were in place, the show was really hitting the ground on, on all cylinders. And so that's kind of how the, the show uh, evolved from some of those early years when they were working out the kinks. And I really believe, and I don't think I'm alone on this, that they really hit their, their peak even after World War II. I know Charles Stump titled one chapter in his book, Heavenly Days, performing at their peak. And he's talking about the after the 1945-46 season from then on. So they were really at their peak during the post-war years. I, I agree with that. I enjoy most, uh, most of the shows from 1942 through 1950 uh, are my favorite, but when, when I get hunked in the middle, like 45, 46, 47, those are my favorite years. Yes. And I, I agree, the writing was right at the, the, the peak right then, and the trivia and the old-timer were back in full force, and so it was, 
It was the best of times for Fibber and Molly. It was the best of times. I do want to talk about Don Quinn and the team of writers who put together these shows over the years. Before I do that, we, we were talking about the evolution of the show and coming to a point where they became the lovable characters. How much influence did Jim Jordan have on that transition? Becoming a lovable character? Uh-huh. Did he have input when these scripts were, were being drawn up so that he would come back and say, I don't think they're going to go for that, and I don't like the, the way that character sounds. I want to be more lovable, and certainly not in those terms. But uh, did he have enough input in the scripts that he could have influenced the way the characters trans made a transition? He might have. But I think for the most part it was... He stayed pretty much away from any interference with the, the script. Uh, and when Phil Leslie came on board in, in 43, um, and in some of the discussions and interviews that, that he gave later on, he indicated it was pretty much a collaborative effort between uh, him and, and Don Quinn. And very often, Phil Leslie would, would write the, the first draft of the script, and then Don Quinn would come in and, and touch it up and, and add items to it. Uh -huh. But uh, I don't think Jim had very much to say about the character. Uh, he really was, I think they worked together so well as a team that Don knew what worked on the show and they would know what wouldn't work on the show. And it just became a natural partnership uh, through the years. And that was the nice thing about having Don Quinn there right from the beginning. And also the very fair treatment that Jim and Marion gave to Don Quinn where they, they particularly in the early years, um, the salaries were split up so that Don Quinn was getting as, as much as they were. Is that dramatically different from what happened in the rest of the industry? Yes. Yes. What, ha what happened in the rest of the industry? Well, the star would get the, the big share. Uh, you know, the big, the big paycheck on the Jack Benny show would go to him. Mm-hmm. And the writers, even though they were very important on the show, they would get nowhere near uh, what a what the star would get. So this is really an enviable position that Don Quinn was in, being in a situation where he was recognized truly for the for the talent that he was. Yes, and. Jim Jordan, in any number of interviews later in his life, always gave credit uh, to Don Quinn um, for uh, the show's success. He was very humble about that. Um, he would never, he would never say something like, uh, "I deserve more money because I'm the healthy, clean living, red-blooded, honest." <laughs> like Fibber would say. And, and stuff like that there. <laughs> yeah, and stuff like that there. That's good. Before before I leave the early shows, I want to talk about Silly Watson, the character of Silly Watson. <clears throat> Excuse me. He's not someone, pardon me, <clears throat> he's not someone who shows up except in the, perhaps, what, 1935 into 1936? Was he even there in 1936? Yes. He was. Yes. It's a very unusual character. I saw them, and I know I'm, I mentioned this in an email to you, Fibber and Molly did not start
strike me as being in a position where they could afford or it would be reasonable to assume that they could afford or have some kind of personal help. And Silly Watson was in everything. I'm take, I mean, he ironed shirts, he drove them different places. Would you talk to me a little bit about that character? After Fibber and Molly settled into their their home, they needed another character to play off of. Isabel Randolph and Bill Thompson joined the, the cast in 1936, but in 1935, it was just basically Harlow, Jim, and Marion, so they, they needed another character to play off of because they weren't driving to places like they were before where they'd run into people. So he was an in-house character, so to speak. And it's very true uh, that Fibber and Molly were of very modest means, Fibber never having engaging in any occupation. <laughs> and so you wonder how Silly Watson would have been paid for his services as, as houseboy, uh, other than maybe room and board. And whenever I think of that, it also brings up the question of how Fibber and Molly in the 1940s could have paid for Beulah services as a, as a cook. But that was out of necessity that they needed another character uh, in the plot. And I, I think that's the reason for Silly Watson being there is they needed somebody to play off of. And his role became uh, quite significant after Molly uh, left the show in early 1938, so she was off of all of 38 and up to April of, of 39. But by that time, other characters had been worked into the plot. By that time, in, in 38 and 39, Hal Perry was playing regular parts, and Mrs. Uppington had become a character, and Bill Thompson was starting to assume various characters. And so the, the main reason he was there at the beginning, and he was also a handy person. The show was being broadcast from Chicago, and Hugh Studebaker, who played Silly Watson, was active on many soap operas, Bachelor's Children and a number of other soap operas that were being broadcast from Chicago. So he was very handy. He could be there. He, he'd be at WGN um, or WMAQ, whatever the studio might be, and he could just go across town or go to the, this, wherever the studio was, and he could be on both broadcasts even on the same day. So he was a handy character to have. His Silly Watson was completely out of his, his usual type of character. Um, sometimes when people hear Elliot Lewis playing Frankie Remley on Phil Harris' Alice Faye, they can't reconcile that character with the characters that he would play on The Voyage of the Scarlet Queen and Suspense and other characters because he sounded so out of place. And the same was true for Hugh Studebaker. He was not a comic character uh, by nature, but he certainly was very silly, as his name would imply, on a number of those episodes. The full name that Quinn gave to him was Silvius Leviticus Numbers Deuteronomy Watson. 
which was quite a mouthful. Did, did half of the Old Testament there. That's right. <laughs> and when the show moved to California, where it was for the rest of the series, that was in 1939, on the 24th of, of January of 39, that was the last episode uh, in Chicago. And that was the end of Silly Watson? That's right. Okay. Hugh Studebaker stayed in Chicago to do the various soap operas and other broadcasts he was doing there, mm -hmm. and the rest of the cast went to California. Now, as, tell me about the characters as they began to appear. Their first appearances? Or? As, well, as, as they began to uh, round out the show. They didn't all just show up on, on the same show. We had Mayor Latrivia later on. We started with, we had Gildersleeve earlier, um, the old-timer, only Svensson. We had so many of those characters coming in. How did they come about, and which of them do you think were the major contributors to the show? Well, Bill Thompson was the longest sustaining cast member, except for the time he was in World War II, serving in the Navy. He was there uh, virtually from 1936 um, to the end of the 15-minute episodes in 1956. At the beginning, he was playing a variety of characters. Sometimes he'd play four or five parts in, in some of those early episodes. But he didn't become the, the person who was actually identified as the old-timer until September 13th of 37. And that was the first episode that Isabel Randolph first became the character known as Mrs. Uppington. Hal Perry made an appearance in that same episode, but he was not yet Gildersleeve. Gildersleeve didn't come until a little bit later. But Horatio K. Boomer came in in 37, and then, as I mentioned, the old-timer started to develop more into a character in 1938 with his, that ain't the way I heard it, which was his catchphrase. And Gail Gordon first became La Trivia uh, in October of 1941, even though he was playing a variety of characters from Otis Catwallader to different individuals in 39 and 40. Of all the support characters who were in those shows, which one is your favorite? That's a little bit like asking <laughs> asking a, a father whose three children are in the room, which of them are, are your favorite? Well, let's pretend the kids aren't in the but room. It, I guess my affection for Gail Gordon goes so deep because I consider him, as I wrote in the title of one, the article I wrote on him, the best second banana in the bunch. I really think Gail Gordon was one of the most talented and underrated performers on radio. It would be the trivia uh, and the blow-ups that I, I just look forward to, and his timing was just so exquisite on them. Bill Thompson's old-timer character was also very attractive to me because he, he just had so many of those old gags and old wheezes and, and he was such a playful character. Uh, Arthur Q. Bryant's Dr. Gamble uh, also was a, a character I enjoyed because whenever 
he and Fibber would get together, you could see the fireworks that were coming um, because they enjoyed teasing each other and making sarcastic remarks. Uh, the characters that I would say are the, the contributed the least were those characters that I think maybe were could be classified as fill-in characters. Gail Gordon's character of Latrivia was an enduring character, but after Mayor LaGuardia died in September of 47, it was considered indelicate to have a character named Latrivia playing in a humorous show right so soon after that. So they decided that for during the 47-48 season, he would play this character called Foggy Williams, which just didn't work. Uh, this wishy-washy weatherman just wasn't uh, a good character. Uh, he really had, neither had a chance to develop as a humorous character. There were other characters that are kind of fill-in characters that are best, I guess, forgotten. I don't know if you remember Gene Carroll had a small role as Lena oh, yes. in 1947. Mm -hmm. He was on for a number of weeks, kind of as a, a Beulah spin-off, you might say, Yeah. because B. Benaderet had been in an automobile accident, and she was playing Mrs. Carstairs at that time, and they needed another quote-unquote female character to fill in during the time until she could recover. So that, to me, was a very artificial character, but... There was a reason for it. When you think of the, uh, the time when Gordon and Thompson were in the military during World War II, they brought in Ransom Sherman to play Sigmund Wellington, who ran the theater, mm -hmm. and he also appeared several times as Uncle Dennis. Neither of those characters really were very enduring. They were kind of quirkish characters. And, and Beulah and Alice Dowling, we all know the reason they were there. At that time, maybe we didn't concentrate so much on why they were there. But again, more characters were needed to fill in for the absence of Thompson and Gordon. When Thompson was absent, you actually lost a lot of your cast because by that time, he was already playing Wimple and the old-timer, and occasionally Nick Devopoulos. So the most enduring characters to me would be Latrivia, the old-timer, and Gamble, and the ones I mentioned most recently, uh, the more fill-in characters, the ones that didn't endure, uh, those would be the ones that contributed least, but they still filled an important role during that time. That's interesting. I did not know that it was the death of Mayor LaGuardia that caused the burp in the Mayor Latrivia routine. Yes. That's yeah, really People were more uh, sensitive to things like that at that time, and of course LaGuardia was a very popular mayor. There is not another mayor in the world who read the funny sheets to kids. That's right. That's great, right. Great guy. Just a great guy. Um, you've talked about Don Quinn at different times, what a gifted wordsmith he is, what a gift or was, what a gifted writer he was, and how he pulled together so many different shows. Would you talk about Don Quinn and the rest of the writers who put these shows together from 1935 right through the 50s? All right. 
I like to use comparisons uh, to other shows because it, it tends to, to let us see how and why Fibber McGee and Molly was superior, uh, in, at least in my estimation. When you think about, for example, the Bob Hope show, what comes to mind is the monologue at the beginning, the one-liners, the banter with Jerry Colonna and the other guests, maybe a sketch that was going on. Or you think of a show like Life of Riley, and you think of the humor in that show, and you think of the humor as being the banter between Riley and Jim Gillis, or between Digger O'Dell, or the family members, or other people that he would run into. With Don Quinn, I sometimes think of him as a, a crafty pitcher who would vary his delivery. He wouldn't throw you the same delivery every time. And he wouldn't throw you the same kind of humor. One week, it might be, the emphasis might be on aphorisms, what I call Quinn quotes of notes, <laughs> where he would work words around by saying, a scoop is when you get there first to give some second rater the third degree for the fourth estate. Another portion of that show, or another week, the emphasis might be on puns. He liked working the names of authors into his show sometimes. He might have Fibber say, you think you're getting away with something for a while, Kipling, but it won't be for long, fellow. And then he would take a little pause and say, I should have made that wittier. <laughs> You know, a more sophisticated kind of humor than just rattling off, here's a straight line, give me a, a punchline. Here's a straight line, give me a punchline. He would throw off the alliterative sentences that we'll probably talk about in a minute or two. Oh, my goodness, yes. Uh, the long descriptive similes that he would rattle off, particularly he'd have Dr. Gamble or Latrivia rattle one off that would describe some of Fibber's shortcomings. Uh, patches of doggerel. There would be some give and take banner, some sarcasm sometimes, the catchphrases that we look forward to, the blow-ups either of Fibber or the trivia or other characters, the twists on old jokes. There was so much variety in his show and I think that's what makes the show age very well because Quinn didn't put all his eggs in one basket. If you think back to some of those Bob Hope shows that I mentioned, or Fred Allen, both of those comedians very often dealt in topical humor. They would talk about a labor situation, or they'd mention John L. Lewis, or they'd mention a Hollywood star, Lana Turner, or somebody like that who's getting married, or whatever it might be. So many of those topical jokes don't age very well because we can't remember what the circumstances were back in 1938 or 42 that brought that joke about. The humor on Fibber and Molly was more in the situations that we could identify with and that were played off of, like missing laundry or riding public transportation or common ordinary things that we could identify with and then playing off the characters. That's interesting. It's interesting. Uh, Walton and I have talked about the the absence of topical jokes 
and banter in the Fibber McGee and Molly shows, which keeps them evergreen. There aren't very many things in there. Once in a while, I'll find something and I'll pounce on it and say, oh, good, I can look something up. This week, it's celery tonic. Do you know what celery tonic is? Celery tonic? Yeah, I never heard of it before. It was in one of the Fibber McGee and Molly shows, so I went out and found a recipe for celery tonic. But it was something that was very popular in the 40s. But there are so few of those things. And as you're talking, I recognize that with so few topical items, it's an evergreen enjoyment. If we pick these up 20 and 30 years from now, we're still going to be able to enjoy them. And that is true. That is true. To carry on with... Um, what you had said earlier when you wanted to carry on with the sequence of writing after the 30-minute shows. Phil Leslie and Don Quinn uh, wrote most of the shows from 43 on to the end of the 30-minute episodes in 1953. Don Quinn left in 1950 to oversee the Halls of Ivy, which in itself is a very good show, too, that ages very well. After the 30-minute period ended, the shows were no longer broadcast before a live audience. From the fall of 53 until March of 56, it was on five times a week for 15 minutes. Phil Leslie did the writing with help mainly from Len Levinson and Ralph Goodman. And the focus became more on telling a story. Many of these episodes were continued uh, for four or five uh, episodes. And so the emphasis was no longer on setting up jokes because there was no audience to amuse. It was more conveying a story. And for those episodes, it was just Jim, Marion, Bill Thompson, who would play the old-timer, and Wallace Wimple, as well as a few subsidiary characters, and Arthur Q. Bryan playing Dr. Gamble. And then from 1957 to 59, on the weekends, on Saturday and Sunday, there would be five-minute monitor shows written by Tom Cook, who you had on uh, for an interview. Again, there was no audience, and each of these five vignettes that ran actually about three minutes in time dealt with a single subject for a particular day, like a National Poetry Day or whatever the subject might be. And for those episodes, it was just Jim and Marion uh, recording those shows. But it's remarkable in that they were the only program, to my knowledge, that had a good run in all those different formats, 30 minutes, 15 minutes, and then those little uh, vignettes. And I suppose that you could count that one special anniversary show during the beginning of 1949 through 50 when they had a special one-hour program. They also had a 60-minute show as well. It's a remarkable story from start to finish with these people. We're talking with Claire Schultz, author of Sibber McGee and Molly on the Air, 1935 to 1959. 
published by Bear Manor Media. You can find information about the book, and you can buy the book through bearmanormedia.com. It's one of our friends. We mention them often. And you said Books A Million, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, I guess, as well? Yes, yes. So any of your major book outlets that is correct. have that it is available correct. or can get it for you. That is absolutely correct. That is cool. Okay. Um, gosh, we talked about Quinn. We talked about um, – tell me about the shows you think are most memorable. Do you have two or three that come to mind? Hello? No. Hello? Oh, can you hear me okay? Yes. Oh, okay. I heard the words two or three and then nothing after that. Oh, my goodness. Okay, <laughs> two or three of the most memorable shows from your ears, just you, not anybody else, but which of the three you enjoy most? That's, again, uh, <laughs> uh, very, very tough to say. I will say this, uh, that... Almost all of my favorite episodes are from 47 through 51. Uh, the first show that I would, if I had to just save some shows to save, the first one I would save would be that 1941 episode when they're trying to go early to bed. And it has some great lines and it shows Fibber's frustration. Uh, from the Warriors, the Port Swing episode, which really captures World War II flavor. It really has a great rapport between Fibber and Molly. But from the time period we're talking about as, as the best of Fibber and Molly, from 47 to 51, 52 in that era, the Apple Crop episode uh, strikes a note in my mind. The Drive in the Country, it's really a great nostalgic episode. It brings back the days of Burma Shave Signs. The, the Raft episode, you talk about an episode that's great for the imagination. You remember that one in 1947 when the, the whole living room is filled with a raft? That's the show I picked for tonight. It is. It is, uh, and it's one of my favorites. It's just one of those great episodes that could not possibly play as well on the screen as it does in your imagination because you just can't picture a room filling up like the, the way it does in our imagination. The Baseball Cologne episode from 48, uh, a great episode that shows McGee the inventor. Uh-huh. The Smoking the Pipe episode from 1945, McGee perpetually frustrated. One of the reasons I like that mailman uh, bitten by a dog in 1950 is it's a great instance of McGee versus City Hall. Those were some of my favorite episodes when McGee would take on uh, the rest of the world. And the week after that is a memorable show in that it has one of the best Latrivia blow-ups. That's Latrivia's party. And it's the first Cliff Arquette name game where he gets Fibber and Molly uh, upset over his uh, supposed denseness. And then, as we talked about the last time we talked back in April, my favorite back-to-back -back episodes are the Christmas episode of 1951, the spirit of giving presents in which Fibber grouses about the presents that he's getting, but finally Teeny teaches him the real meaning of, of giving, and it changes his mind. And then the following week, visiting friends on New Year's Day, uh, McGee overindulging in the fact that too much of a good thing can be harmful. So those are 
some of my favorite episodes that if somebody said, your house is burning down, pick 10 episodes, those would be the 10 I would pick. <laughs> if you couldn't get all the kids in your arms at the same time, <laughs> that's cute. Um, you, despite having listened to all of these shows and cataloged all of these shows, you did a fair amount of research for this book. You had to. Yes? Yes, I did. You did. Was there anything along the way that surprised you? Not really, but I will say this. There are constantly things that surprise me now about the show, and a number of these occurrences are ones when I'm not even listening to the show. That may sound a little strange, but I'm being impressed by the show when I remember certain things. Something occurred to me just in the last couple weeks that I hadn't really thought that this is another reason why I like the show, and maybe it's because I've lived in the Midwest all my life, and the change of seasons is something that I'm used to. And I wonder if the fact that a number of the episodes, and some of which I'm going to mention in a moment or two, comes from the fact that there's a Midwest flavor to the show, maybe because the creative forces in the show were from the Midwest. Jim and Marion, of course, were from Peoria. Don Quinn was born in Michigan. Phil Leslie came from Missouri. Even Bill Thompson came from Indiana. If you think about the show, think of how many episodes were related to the seasons. When you think about the fall, you think about the duck hunting seasons, driving to football games, the, the leaves episodes, the apple crop episode that I, I mentioned. In the winter, you know, everybody, every show would have an episode devoted to Christmas, maybe a couple episodes devoted to Christmas, and maybe to Valentine's Day. But those were indoor attractions, special shows that could be played anytime. Fibber McGee and Molly had episodes dealing with blizzards and shoveling snow and ice skating at Dugan's Lake and the sleigh ride episodes. Uh, even when Fibber wanted that one episode, he was saying he was going to take a walk to Dugan's Lake, <laughs> yes. and Alice and Molly doubted him. Even though that was mainly indoors, it had the flavor of an outdoor episode, getting out on a cold night. The bet with Doc Gamble over an icicle. In the spring, when you think of spring and Fibber, McGee, and Molly, you think of fishing at Dugan's Lake, the battles with Old Muley, putting up the porch swing the building and flying of a kite, the battles that he had with lawnmowers, the baseball cologne episode, the several episodes that dealt with picnics, going to carnivals and circuses. If you think about other programs, very few, if any, programs, primetime comedy programs, had that flavor. Think of Armis Brooks, Jack Benny, Bergen and McCarthy, Phil Harris, Alice Faye, Fred Allen, Life of Riley, Red Skelton, My Favorite Husband, Duffy's Tavern, Burns and Allen, Amos and Andy, My Friend Irma, Bob Hope. You could go right on down the line. 
They don't have that seasonal nostalgic appeal. And it's not that people can't today go duck hunting. They can still go duck hunting. You can buy apples at a farm in the country. You can take a sleigh ride. You can put up a porch swing. And you can go to a carnival. But the flavor of the times, the prices, the foods, the cars, the trolleys, the customs, the traditions, the just the way people talk, the expressions they used, they're no longer there. You know, just as people today, they can take train travel, they can get on a commuter train or an Amtrak train if they want to go across the country, but it's not as accessible as it was in the 1940s and 50s, like when Fibber and Molly would decide to go visit Aunt Sarah, and they'd run into quaint characters at the railway station or on the train. And when you think about, I started to think about just movies. People can still go to movies like the McGee's did, but now they have to go to cineplexes, which are nothing like Bank Night and Double Features at the Bijou. I guess that's another way in which Fibber and Molly have found a way into my heart because they capture a time in my past and in our nation's past that no other program does. And we'll never see again except through the eyes of radio. That is correct. And that's why I'm glad these shows still exist so that people who were not alive at that time, don't remember any of those things, can remember what life was like back then. It was kinder and gentler. With two of the kindest and gentlest people? Yes. I have an unauthorized question for you. As you were talking, you mentioned different phrases and expressions that the characters used in Fibber McGee and Molly used. There's one Molly used occasionally when she was telling Fibber, boy, have I got news for you, buddy. She used the expression, I have a TL for you. Do you know what that means? It's an expression called trade last. It is. Yes. Oh, okay, that was the only thing that I could find out there, and it didn't seem to fit. Right, it's trade last. It's almost like saying, I have a nice thing to say about you, but in return, you have to say something nice about me. Or I heard something nice about you, you have to give something back to me. Oh, my goodness. It, it, it sounded as if she was saying, boy, have I got news for you. Yeah, it, it, sometimes it's used as a... It's like saying, I've got a flash for you. Yes, a telegram, a TL, yeah. a telegram. Yeah. I, I could not find anything except trade last. And I searched everywhere. And I thought, this can't possibly be it. And yeah. it is. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's an expression that has pretty much fallen out of, out of our vocabulary. But you'll hear it on some of the, the older programs. There was one on Jack Benny at one time. And those are the only two shows... I've ever heard. I could have saved myself an awful lot if I had sent an email to you first. In that case, yes. Um, <laughs> it, it would have worked out. Yes, I could have. Alliteration. You, you identified 16 running gags, and, and I think if I struggled, I could probably come up with one or two more that kind of sneaked in over the years. And you explained why they never got old, because...
jokes about the past when he would bring in his the tongue twisters, and the one that he brought in in April of 1940 was in relation to the women's club play, and he was telling about his experience in being on the stage and with scripts, and he said, I never felt at ease without a script in my hand. Scripties McGee, I was known as in those days. Scripties McGee, the sensational and super sophisticated showman of stage and screen, schooling sappy cinema stars in the subtle science of screaming and scowling, smiling and smirking, snaring and snorting, sniffing and snickering, snaring and sneezing, shouting and shooting, skillfully supervising stupendous spectacles, shooting smooth and sustained scenarios, shaming Shakespeare and showing up Shaw for his shabby shoddiness, sounding seasoned by storms and stresses, but take it, Kingsman, it's tough with these S's. Fabulous. Can you hear the applause all over the place? Oh, that my. was priceless. Thank you. That was great. Now, how long did, did you have to put in to get that as polished as you just delivered? I read it twice before uh, today. Um, that's, that's all. And I think with Fibber, and we talked about this before via email, Fibber rarely stumbled uh, over those tongue twisters. And I think it was a sense of the sequence, how the words fit together, and how the words rose and fell in a natural uh, sing-songy cadence that made it so he would rarely stumble. I think if it ever came to a time when he was reading one of those and he just would stumble, he would say to Don, I can't do this particular one. There's too many consonants together. Uh, I can't say it. Can we just eliminate or could you put another word in there? And I think that would have been done. Uh -huh. Some of the, the toughest words to say are the very short ones. Sometimes you can try this off the uh, air after we finish our conversation or by yourself. Just saying these four words, good blood, bad blood. When you say them relatively slowly, you can say them, good blood, bad blood. But if you say them 10 times fast, the L's in there blend in with the other words, and it's almost impossible to say that sequence of words without stumbling over it. Mm-hmm. There was a rhythm, as you say, there was a rhythm, and it, it wasn't musical, but it was rhythmic, and the words, the words went from one to another without a bump. There, there was nothing jarring in there that would make Fibber stop. When he was doing that, it was just Jim Jordan's talent, as, as you just proved that you've got as well, to deliver these things time after time. And I also think we should not overlook Don Quinn's part in this, because he was the one who came up with those 84 words, all related to the topic of the week. And that topic that he happened to be talking about was writing and show business. Two weeks later, on May 14, 1940, the topic happened to be boxing, and he called uh, McGee called himself Punchbowl McGee. I was known as, and in that sequence, the words like 
Pugilistic and Palookas came out in that sequence. And then the following week, Quinn came up with terms related to merchandising as McGee would be running a hardware store and Killer Diller was the lead-in and there were K-sounds. So he had to use words like cooks, customers, catalogs, and clients and deliver all of those. And that's what makes me think that Don Quinn was often overlooked. People would be amazed and pat Jim Jordan on the back for delivering all those mm -hmm. words, but it was not easy to come up with 85, 90 words, all beginning with the same consonant sound and all related to that topic of the week. And yet Don Quinn was able to do that uh, so effortlessly. And that was another way he threw a, a joke at us. And very often those alliterative sequences were what led into the King's Men number or a Billy Mills number because they just flowed naturally, people would applaud right into uh, the musical number that was coming up next. Uh-huh. And that's, that's what makes me, I guess if, if I had to think of Elizabeth Barrett Browning, I would say, I just thought of another reason, let me count the ways that I love the show. How do I love these Fibber McGee and Molly? <laughs> That's good. You have my word that I have never overlooked Don Quinn in being able to put these things together. Um, I think my favorite one is about planting prunes. Do you recall that one? Yes. Yeah, that was... That's one of my favorites. That was, probably that, because that was 1950. Were... On that one, uh, there's a, even a little more... He, by that time in 1950, they were getting a little bit more into... Uh, rhyming as well as alliteration. Uh, he said he was back in Peoria. I worked for old man Bruner as chief pruner of Bruner's pruners, specializing in pruning prune trees to produce premium prunes. Everybody knows that a well-pruned prune tree produces prettier prunes than an unpruned prune tree, and I was the pride of the prune people. Some of the pruners pruned at noon, but I like to prune by the light of the moon. I got to be known around the prunery as Goon Boy, the lunar pruner. I'd always croon a little tune when I'd start to prune those premium prunes, and between my crooning tunes and pruning prunes and tuning moons and crooning prunes, we finally ripped up all the trees and planted tulips again. <laughs> That's it. People need to know that we did not plan this. You had no idea I was going to mention the prune no. routine, oh. and you just did it. Uh, that is fabulous. Thank you for doing that. I, I love that one, and you just did it another one flawlessly here. Absolutely wonderful. Well, what, what made the show flow so, so pricelessly together is we're having fun tonight, and you made a comment at one time uh, via email as to why I said the show was fun and funny. Mm-hmm. And I think... The reason the show is so fun now as it was back then is that everyone was having a good time. When I think of some of the Bob Hope movies, particularly those road movies that he did, they're so enjoyable because Bob would look right at us sometimes and he would say, Bing's going to sing now, go out and have some popcorn or something like that. He was having a good time and we were in on the fun. Uh-huh. So we in the audience were having the fun and... 
when you think of, of some programs like Life of Riley and My Friend Irma, some of the shows I've mentioned, Duffy's Tavern, you really don't picture the cast members as having a wonderful time. That, that doesn't mean they were considering it just a job, but you don't get the feeling, oh, these people are just bubbling over with fun. They're just having so much fun doing the show. Where with Fibber and Molly, it was the byplay, the ad-libs between Jim and Marion, the joking with Wilcox, the joking with Billy Mills, the, those musical numbers that would just flow right from one to the other, the integrated commercial. It's amazing that on that program, the integrated commercial in the middle was sometimes as funny as the lines in the show. Jim and Marion would break up and Harold Wilcox would break up. We were having fun listening to them have fun. That's it, exactly. Exactly. They, they took down the fourth wall. And Jim would often say, look out, here it comes now, or when Harlow would seem to indicate a line that was going to tease into the commercial, like um, something like, uh, I'm not feeling too well today, I, I'm just down in the dumps, or something like that. You knew that he'd be leading into the commercial, and Fibber would say something like, look out, folks, I have a feeling this is leading to something, or <laughs> look out, Racine, here it comes. And... Uh, it was like he was waking at us and saying, you know, here we're going to have a joke coming up. I, I can't, like the old song, I can't begin to tell you, I can't begin to enumerate all the ways that Jim Jordan is underappreciated. Some of those most enjoyable shows for me were when Fibber would put on airs. You remember those episodes when he would become a sculptor or a painter or a poet or a novelist? All of a sudden, he'd become an artiste. He would say to Wilcox, I I think it would be nice if he would use the tradesman entrance or something like that, that there were several levels of fun. We were having fun, and we knew this was Jim Jordan, the comic actor, playing Fibber McGee, and Fibber McGee was playing this artiste, this sophisticate. Fibber was winking at us. Fibber was putting people on, and everybody knew he was putting people on, and he would stay that way until Molly or Gamble or someone would say, get off your high horse or something, come down to earth, like that. But it was like several degrees of fun that Jim was having with us, and we were enjoying it all, and we never, we never believed for a moment that when Fibber would do something that was a little underhanded, like buying black market meat uh, during World War II, we never for a moment thought that that person was Jim Jordan, because Jim Jordan would come to the mic at the end of the show, and he would come in front of us, and he would say, this is a serious matter. Don't buy black market meat. We knew that he was playing a part, and we respected him for it, and we respected him for the great comic talent that he was. Indeed. When you were talking a minute ago about, for example, when Harlow Wilcox was gearing up to get into a commercial and Fibber would say, get ready, folks, here it comes, they lost that ability to interact and bring the audience into the fun when they went to the format without an audience. How badly did that hurt the show? 
I'm not sure their audience was that great at that time. As as you look at ratings um, and rankings, yeah, that's another thing I list in my Fibber McGee and Molly in the appendix, appendix B. The ratings, when they were at their peak in the, the 40s, they were getting ratings of 37%, 31%, 30%. They were getting you know, a third of the audience. The ratings for 53-54 when they were in the 15-minute show, 3.6. 54 55%, 3%. 55-56, 2.2%. They weren't even among the top 20 shows. They were getting only 3% of the audience. Even mm -hmm. Jack Benny, who was getting high ratings during uh, the last years, 53, 54, and so on, he was only generating maybe 8, 10% of the listening audience because people were no longer listening to the radio. But to, to answer uh, your question, it did have a much more canned feel to it. Just like if people are longtime listeners to suspense, the episodes during the 1940s when they were sponsored by Autolite and Roma Wines that had a live pitchman, and Harlow Wilcox was a pitchman for some of those suspense episodes, when you listen to some of the canned episodes from the 1950s and you'd get these recorded commercials for Anison and different products, they don't have the same sound to it. It sounds like a, a factory studio production. Mm -hmm. And the same feeling is true with those 15-minute shows. When you lose your, your audience and you have these public service announcements and the canned commercials, and the commercials weren't even delivered by, for the most part, by John Wald, who was their announcer during those years, they don't have the same, the same feeling at all. And the episodes were, a number of the episodes, they had no laugh lines in them at all because the concern was how to tie the story into the next day so they could have a three or four parter dealing with Citizen X or whatever the, the story might be for that particular week. So they had a, a completely different flavor than the 30 minute shows which were broadcast before a, a live audience. Yeah. Jim and Marion sounded tired. They sounded weary in the 15-minute shows. And part of it may be the fact that they were no longer uh, young, and perhaps they no, they no longer had the, the impetus to act up. If you're just sitting in front of a microphone and you know that your lines aren't going to generate any response from anybody, although occasionally in the background, Marion would break up at one of Jim's lines, or in some cases I even heard Bill Thompson break up, there's not really much desire to put your, your heart into it because they had always been before a live audience and, and many people feed on that. They need that mm -hmm. that response, and this is why many people, when they're being interviewed, they're asked, what do you prefer most, uh, the stage or 
radio or movies or whatever it might be, many of them prefer the stage because it gives them a contact with an audience. Instant response. They get feedback right away and yes. they know how people are reacting. That's really interesting. We're talking with Claire Schultz, who is the author of Fibber McGee and Molly on the Air, 1935 to 1959. If you have a question, please give a call, 714-545-2071. I don't want to let you go without two things. First, we were talking about Marion's absence earlier when we were first on the phone before we got on the air. There were some questions about why she was not on the show and some comments, we had some comments about why the show did so well without Marion. What happened with Marion during that period? Charles Stump, in his book, Heavenly Days, indicated that partially due to the, the film that they made, This Week, This Way, Please, which kind of wore Marion down, and the task of doing a weekly show drained Marion's strength, and it had a serious effect on her health, which had been fragile for quite a while. In September of 37, she was concerned about her waning strength, and she visited a physician, and bed rest at a sanitarium was ordered and so all of her activities were curtailed and at that time stop indicates her in illness grew worse and finally forced her off the air completely and Jim was concerned about her missing uh, the broadcast but he was more concerned about her health and so the show then became during the time she was off from early 38 to April of 39, the show was known as Fibber and Company. And during that time, Hugh Studebaker played an important part, and also Hal Perry played a variety of roles. And also, Isabel Randolph played Abigail Uppington. So it was basically Thompson and Isabel Randolph, Harold Perry, and Zazu Pitts. Occasionally she would fill in some times as well. And then in April of 39, when Marion came back, The show picked up comic speed then, and it was soon the, the Fibber and Molly that we have come to know and love. And we have a caller. Uh, hello, Carl. You're on air. Hello, Walden. Hello, Patty. And good evening, Mr. Schultz. How are you? Thank you. I'm well. We're enjoying the program very, very much. I wanted to bring up a point that always fascinated me was the fact that with the Fibber, McGee, and Molly show, that seemed to me to be the first place that I could understand what developed the whole concept of a spin-off. They did that when they picked up with Gildersleeve. Gildersleeve was 
spun off into his own series, and then again with Beulah and uh, with uh, Marlon Hurt, and which always surprised me too. I didn't find out too much later when I, I used to load the program listening to it to find out. And I always wondered why they always laughed. It was the same thing with the uh, when with Life of Luigi when Rosa would come on, the whole the whole audience would just go crazy, and I just assumed that she was probably a very large woman. And uh, the same thing with Beulah, and I, I didn't understand what was going on until I later on learned that, first of all, Beulah was being placed by a male as opposed to a, uh, to a female. And uh, that, you know, that was probably the reason why there was such a, such a tremendous uh, uh, bunch of laughter, because these people were probably, he was probably off stage, and when they would bring him in, he would probably go on stage to the microphone. And, uh, and then, you know, the audience, listening to them over the years, Hearing this uh, voice of a uh, of a housekeeper would then turn around and say it was it was a man playing the part of a uh, of a female, which I thought was like a, a strange, wonderful concept. But that that whole idea of them being a uh, a spinoff, uh, I think you know how many times has that happened with not only in the radio programs but then also too with with uh, the TV programs where they spun off uh, additional shows because of the how the popularity of, of the uh, character do you have any uh, any other shows that were uh, similar to that no uh, the I would say Gildersleeve to my knowledge was the first spin-off correct yeah. and I guess if you could call it such the Jack Benny program spun off the Phil Harris Alice Faye show Mm -hmm. which was the Fitch bandwagon for a while. Then Dennis Day had a program called A Life in the Day of Dennis Day, or A Day in the Life of Dennis Day. And also Mel Blanc had a short series, um, mm -hmm. Mel Blanc at Fix-It Shop. Fix-It Shop, yeah. Now, that's the only other program that was so strong that the characters could carry over into to other programs. Yeah, with, with the fact that they had been on his series for so many years that they knew what the characters were and it made it easy because I understood that also too with the, with the Phil Irish show uh, since it was on the same night as Jack and I, I think it believed that, that followed his program that he allowed uh, that's why you want to hear Phil in the first uh, 15 minutes of the program and then he let him go so he can go down and get into the uh, to the studios at the other other uh, uh, radio station who broadcast that thing. So it was, it was very, very interesting to, to uh, understand that. But I just thought that that was, to me, it was a very, very interesting concept, uh, the whole thing of spinoffs and uh, showing the popularity of them and whether they own a piece of it or not, because I understood that earlier you had spoken about Jack Benny, and uh, I was under the impression that he was the producer of the program, and because he mentioned to it in a couple of other books I read that, that he paid for everything, and they were at, all under contract to uh, Mr. Benny. So uh, I didn't know whether or not that was the same uh, thing here that was happening with the Gildersleeve and uh, also the Buell program with Marlon Hart. Yes, and it was it was really unfortunate that he died. Uh, Marlon Hurt died of a heart attack. Six and forty-six. I was I was so, so surprised to hear that. I was always wondering what happened to him until I. Uh, looked it up and I found out that he had passed away uh, of a heart attack and apparently he was a young young person so yes only only the age of 40 and and 
you're, it's one of those where you scratch your head and say, what could have, might have been. Sure, now, yeah. Might that show have been one of the, the real popular shows in the late 40s? Yeah, and the, and the, and the series went on for a number of years, too, uh, after uh, he had passed on uh, with uh, different uh, different people doing viola. Well, I thank you very much, and I enjoyed it. Patty, thank you. Have a good night, and Walden, and uh, enjoy, and I'll let it open for any other calls coming in. Thank you, sir, and I look forward to uh, picking up your book. Right, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Schultz. All right. You, you want to give us a call? You can. 714-545-2071. Do you know, Mr. Schultz, where um, they're... They, erase that. Let me start again. Jim and Marion had a son and a daughter. And I know that they had one child very early on when they were you know, really stomping around trying to make a name for themselves and, and get established. When Marion was ill, what age were the children? Where where were they in terms of the family? In 37? Yes. She was ill? Uh-huh. <clears throat> Let me do a little checking on that. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I think the daughter was born in 1920. 1920. I think. Okay, so she would have been older. Now, was she born first, Walden? I think so. And I think Jim Jr., I'm not sure when he was born. But it's maybe, been a little later. Yeah, maybe Claire, Claire Schultz can figure this one out for us. Yeah. So even though she would be around 17 at the time, that's still not out and on her own and if the son were younger. So they had additional responsibilities and concerns there. Well, I was just thinking the timeline. You know, Jim was born in 1896, mm-hmm. and I guess Marion pretty close to that. So if you think about the height of the family game Molly show, 41, they were already in the mid-40s. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know? Yes, which is another reason why uh, when the considerations came to go to television it just would not have worked because they were they weren't the the couple that people would want to see on on television Marion really looked her age um, by 1959 Uh even in some of the publicity photos that are in many of the books she looks older than Jim she she looks tired yes and uh, According to uh, Charles Stump, uh, she was she was absent from a number of the 52, 53 uh, episodes that were kind of rebroadcast and re doctored Yeah, I noticed a lot around March of 53. She is gone. Yes, uh, and, she was gone from those shows. According to to Charles Stump, uh, in his account, uh, she had had a a, a mild heart attack. Ah, and okay. I, so her health was never uh, that good, and of course the ovarian cancer claimed her life in in '61. I wonder if that's partly the reason why Jim shifted to the 15-minute show in the fall of '53 because of a million heart. I don't know. I mean, I'm just throwing out food for thought.
Do you want to give and us I, a call? I think a lot of it had to do with um, budgetary and more people putting their money in television. Yeah, true. Uh, Reynolds and Pet Milk and these other places, they could see the handwriting on the wall. Uh, when you're only reaching 3% of, of the audience, and even in the last year of the 30-minute programs, which was the 52-53 season, they were only reaching 7% in the last year of the 30-minute uh, programs. That's really astounding because they had such a strong, faithful, loyal following for so many years. I think it's the one-eyed monster was moving into many homes. And that was it. Wow. They were... Uncle Milty and, and Lucille Ball and and other people were taking over. Why did Johnson Wack pull out in 1950? Was it because of putting their money in the TV? That is exactly it. They could reach a much bigger audience uh, that way. Mm. That's it. it makes me sad to think that their loyal following, who stuck with them through everything, would drift away because of television. Just kind of left them sitting there. That's really sad. There's a lot of, of stories in the Naked City, as they used to say <laughs> on television. There's a lot of stories that uh, indicate the, the dollar comes first. And I guess it did. We're talking with Claire Schultz, author of Fibber McGee and Molly on the Air, 1935 to 1959. It is a great book. It's an episode log. It will give you every single detail about every single show you could possibly want to know and be astounded at some of the things that are there that I didn't know I didn't know. Um, and you've got a, a great introduction, a wonderful overview, and some super information in there. So it, if you're a Fibber McGee and Molly fan, you have to have it. If you're not a Fibber McGee and Molly fan, you have to have it in order to be one. So you can find it at BearManorMedia.com or on Amazon.com or at Barnes & Noble, any one of your bookstores. You will be able to find this. But this is not the only book that is out there with Claire Schultz's name on it. Would you tell them about the, the most recent one, please? Yes. The most recent book is on the screen, on the air, on my mind. This book contains 35 articles that I wrote over the years for Nostalgia Digest and other magazines on Hollywood stars. Many of these stars were also radio stars. There's also 18 articles on radio shows. The stars uh, include Al Jolson, Jimmy Durante, Betty Hutton, Danny Kaye, Leo Gorsi, Abbott and Costello, Stan Freeberg, Red Skelton, Henry Morgan, Bob Hope, Jerry Colonna, Ernie Kovacs, Arnold Stang, Groucho Marx, Gail Gordon, Eve Arden, Gene Tierney, Joan Davis, Tallulah Bankhead, Lucille Ball, Iris Adrian and Sandra Gould, Bail Lagoshi, Vincent Price, Boris Karloff, Lon Chaney, Jr. and Sr., 
Peter Laurie, Gabby Hayes, Frank Lovejoy, Alan Ladd, Jack Carson, William Bendix, J. Carol Nash, Howard Duff, and Basil Rathbone. And the radio programs discussed are Fibber McGee and Molly, no surprise, Nightbeat, The Stan Freeberg Show, Phil Harris, Alice Faye Show, The Great Gildersleeve, Armis Brooks, The Henry Morgan Show, Jack Benny Program, Quiet Please, Ozzie and Harriet, Pat Novak for Hire, Edgar Bergen, Charlie McCarthy Show, and there's also articles in there on Big Little Books, Photo Play Editions, Tom Mix, and some stories, short stories, uh, Johnson Smith catalogs, and selected short subjects. Over the years, I've collected many examples of sheet music, photographs, magazines, premiums, posters, and other show business memorabilia. So the 587-page book is illustrated with 140 images from my personal collection. On the front cover of the book is a, a photograph of a Johnson's Wax can with Fibram and Molly on it as well as a big little book and a movie flyer and some sheet music and a comic book showing Gabby Hayes and a weight card with Joan Davis on there, an Alan Ladd photo, a Tom Mix manual, and a small Dixie cup lid showing Bob Holt. Inside the book, I also have photographs of some arcade cards. The book is available from Bear Manor Media. It was just published last month. Orders sent directly to me will get an autographed copy of the book. In addition, you will also receive a original arcade card from the 1940 to 1954 period featuring a photograph of a Hollywood star and you'll also receive an original Dixie Club lid featuring a photograph of a Hollywood star from the 1940 to 1953 period. We're back into premiums again. I love it. Yes, and you, you don't even have to send in a box top. No, <laughs> you don't have to eat cereal or anything. Tell me what an arcade card is and how it got its name, please. All right. It got its name from penny arcades. They're sometimes called also exhibit cards. In penny arcades, there were these machines that when you would put a penny in, out would come a little card that's very much like an index card, about three and a half by five, and it features a photograph of a movie star, and then on that photograph is a facsimile of their signature. It might say, cordially yours, Roy Rogers, or it might say, best wishes, Burt Lancaster. And they were available for a penny. And much like bubble gum that you'd put your penny in, you couldn't tell what color you would get. Very often you wouldn't know what star you would get. 
So these arcade cards, if you got a star that you didn't really like, just like bubblegum cards and baseball players that you may not like, you could trade them. And I remember trading some uh, with friends. These cards that I have now are not cards that I had when I was a youngster. Those disappeared many years ago. But cards that I purchased over the years when I picked up show business memorabilia. The Dixie Cup lids were an added bonus from the 30s to the last year, which was 1953, when a person would buy a little cup that had ice cream in it. You would take the top off, and inside the top, there was a little glassine protector. And you'd remove this glassine protector, and underneath would be a photograph of a movie star. For instance, this one that I'm looking at at the cover says, The Road to Morocco, a Paramount star, Bob Hope. And it has Bob Hope's photo in it, black and white photo. Many people who grew up in the 40s and 50s remember these arcade cards and these Dixie Cup lids. And so this is my way of, when orders are sent to me, of replicating that time period so that a person can actually have in their hands a piece of the past as they're reading about those bygone days. These are the real thing. These are not reproductions. These are the real thing. That is correct. That I is love correct. It. I love it. You sent me Burt Reynolds and Shelley Winters. Burt Lancaster, I sent you. Oh, I'm sorry. No, Burt Reynolds, listen to me. That's right. <laughs> These would be all the stars who were popular by that time period. And uh -huh. I'm going to try, for the most part, to send people. I'm going to try to send, for the most part, one male and one female, um, unless a person requests two males or two females. Uh, so that there's a little variety. But they'll all be stars that you recognize. For instance, Burt Lancaster won an Academy Award and was a well-known actor. Shelley Winters won two Academy Awards uh, for supporting actress. So these would be people that you would recognize. And you can contact me with questions about Fibber McGee and Molly or questions about the book. And my email address is easy to remember. Fibber McGee and Molly's address was 79 Wistful Vista. Just reverse the numbers and the name. My email address is wistfulvista79 at hotmail.com. And if you contact him and purchase the book directly, you get the premiums. Otherwise, you don't get the premiums. Now, from my side, I have to tell you from my side, this is not only a great collection, it is a readable collection. You know, sometimes you get a book that's got loads of great information in it, but it's kind of a struggle to get through. Well, you've got great information, and it's not a struggle to get through. It really is a great read. And because they're broken up, you, you've, this is actually a compilation of articles that you have done over the years. And um, so in, instead of picking up uh, 500, how many, how many pages is it? 500 and? 87. Yes, a lot. <laughs> That's right. Got a lot of pages, folks. And? But it's not intimidating because each section is article length. That's correct. I
It's Most of the articles were written so they would run about four or five pages in the magazines that they appeared in. Uh -huh. And there had to be some revisions because a few of the people have passed on since, for instance, the article I wrote on Betty Hutton, she was still living at the time I wrote the article, and so I updated it with her death. The same for Arnold Stang and, and for a few other people. Mm -hmm. But uh, the heart of the article is is basically the, the same. And I hope that maybe at some time later in, in March or some other evening, we can talk in depth about some of these uh, shows, particularly some of the radio shows, because even though we're all fans of Fibber McGee and Molly, almost all of us have any number of other lists that other shows that we would put on our favorite list as well. And a number of them are discussed in the book. Well, it is a great book. It's um, postage paid, $39.95, and it's the equivalent of at least two books. It really is. It's the equivalent of two old-time radio books. Everything in here, I mean, there, there's no filler. You didn't put any filler in here. It's not like you fluffed up and, and left blank pages all over the place. This is, it's just terrific. It, it is a great book. So please contact Mr. Schultz at wistfulvista79 at hotmail.com, and you will be back next month to talk with us about this one. That is correct. I'll That's talk in greater length about that one. Incidentally, um, while we've been talking, Catherine, the daughter of Fibber, or the daughter of Jim and Marion, uh -huh. she was born in 1920, uh -huh. and Jim Jr. was born in 23. Okay. So that gives you an idea of their ages. Okay, so he, he was only 14 when his mom was very ill. Yes. So that's, a, that's an extra challenge and an extra consideration that would have been a pressure on both of them. Wow. They were remarkable people. Indeed, and I wish more people um, who are dazzled by the, the lights of the paparazzi would turn a reflective gaze back toward Fibber and Molly and realize what a great treasure they were to American entertainment. And unfortunately, we appreciate them, but the vast majority of Americans do not. I have a hunch if we could chart our ratings tonight, they would be less than 3% of the American public. Of the American public, yes. Listening to us. However, <laughs> we do pretty well on the Internet numbers. We're right up there with the Internet numbers. So well, that's we're, great, we're... and I hope people are still tuning in. I know in some places... Uh, Many people are thinking of nighty nighttime because, for instance, where you live, Patricia, it's after midnight. It is. But Walden and I are usually here until at least 5 in the morning, my time, Eastern time, and we still get callers throughout the night. Um, sometimes they call us before they go to bed, and then they call us when they wake up. <laughs> We have quite a family, and I know we have a lot of them out there listening to you tonight because we have been telling people you would be with us, and we had quite a few who, who contacted us and said, that is terrific. So they were really looking forward to this. I have, and I don't know if I just pulled this out of my head or you and I actually talked about it, March 19th? That is we, correct. We did talk about it. Okay. That's correct. So unless something terrible happens 
and one of us has to cancel, um, but in that case it would simply be moved if it turns out not to be a great day, you will be back with us on March 19th to talk about on the screen, on the air, on my mind, and gosh, we can do this again. Sure, and there may be a number of people by that time who maybe have purchased the book and will maybe want to ask questions related to items that are in the book. Um, or uh, they may not have necessarily questions, but they may want to know a little bit more about the genesis of the book itself. Yes. Well, I certainly would. So I'm, I'm lining up my questions for next month. All right. Well, that'll be fine. And again, if people have any questions about Fibber McGee and Molly, if uh, they want to send them to that email address, I'll try to answer them. Or if they have any inquiries about the book, I'll try to answer them as well. You're my secret source. You just not now, and you're not my secret source anymore. That comes from my librarian training, I guess. I'm, <laughs> I'm willing to give answers to to anybody. That's part of my training. So. <laughs> I'm joshing. It's really very generous of you to do that um, because every once in a while we get questions, and I say, I don't know, but I know somebody who will know. So now they can come to you directly. WistfulVista79 at Hotmail.com. Mr. Schultz will be back with us on March 19th to talk about his second book, the one, the most recent one. And gosh, we had a good time. I really appreciate you spending so much time with us. I, I kind of overshot the runway here, but I, I really appreciate the extra time. Well, I enjoy talking about old-time radio and Fibber and Molly, so... Let's do it again. Oh, uh, let's do it again. Would you just hold on the line while Walden switches over to um, the system and we'll have a chance to talk. Alexander the Swoot, and I'm so confused. Cook 
mangoes in Gander. Guess I'll have to run away. I know what they'll do if I say I'd rather be a refugee instead of chicken fricassee. <laughs> Maybe you can tell me what a swoosh is. Well, now you just listen here to me and I'll tell you. Alexander the swoosh is a composite bird. Faintly resembling Mortimer Snurd. And bold Donald Duck, only very much grander. For he isn't a dummy, a drake, or a gander. He's old for his age and small for his size. Has Garbo's big feet and Canada's big eyes. The beak of Durante, the moth of Joe Brown. And a Harpo Marx wig made of pink eiderdown. Rochester's voice, the curves of May West, and the stars and stripes that shoot on his chest. What was that? That was a swoosh.
Irving Berlin in 1946 got the, I got the, she got the moon and the sun. The sun in the evening and the moon in the evening with by Doris Day. And here with the lady of the hour, the one, the only, Patricia. Hi. It's me. It's you. Hello, Alden. Hello, Patricia. Happy Saturday. Well, it's Sunday in, in the East Coast. How are things in Guacamole? Well, Guacamole is really great. Um, Boy, Myers is too. <clears throat> Excuse me, except it was a little cool today, but I'm not going to tell you what the temperature is because everybody out there would laugh at me. Yeah, because we know it snows in Florida. It's 48 degrees. That's snow water. That's it has stuff. shoes on. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm just not built for this kind of stuff. So now that everyone is laughing, yes. we can tell them. Tell them what? Tell them what? What are we going to tell them? We're going to tell them that we're going to take a little break and be back in a few minutes. That's right. Patricia and I are going to get up and stretch. And... Eat and grab a snack. Grab a snacky poo and join everybody in a few minutes. And then Walden will be back picking on me. And we'll all have a good time. <gasps> I never pick and on her. Time. I never time we'll be happy. Oh, like that one. I found a good deal for Patricia, which I, I know she'll have her ears on when I play it later. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, cool. Okay. And I have a really good question for you tonight. Really good question. Oh, good. So, are you ready for, yeah. you ready to take a little, little breaky poo? Yep, a little break, and we'll be back in a little bit, folks. Don't Here. go away. Here we go.
I dreamed of all through 
Les Brown tribute to Gabriel Hader's pet phrase, Oh, the good news tonight. So we're going to play another song here. And we'll see if we're getting ready to come back with you for a blast. So here's another Doris Day. I'm assuming we trust that. Thank you. 
And that was Weep Frog. And we're gonna put a little door day music. I think we're gonna. I was looking for a little treat for door for Patricia. I'll find it later. Stay down. Hello, Patricia. Hello, Robin. You can knock me up one little teeny weeny notch. Teeny weeny 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 little notch. Okay. There we go. This is good. Hi, everybody. Happy February 12th already. Can you believe that? Christmas time coming. Almost. Hang in there. Four more months and you get to, well, it's not even, it's three and a half months and you get to have Christmas in July. I know Patricia and I want to wish everybody happy Valentine's Day this Monday. Four and a half months. I'm sorry. That's okay. Happy Valentine's Day to everybody. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Abraham Lincoln's birthday. Happy Lincoln's birthday. And stuff like that there. Stuff like that there. I've got other birthdays too. Woo, woo, woo. Oh wait, let me think. Um, I think I think it was. Um, don't go away. Um, <laughs> um, I know I had it. I had a whole bunch of stuff. You keep talking and I'll find it. Oh, she wants me to work for there tonight. It oh yeah. yeah, see, I did that. I did that. Okay. Um, Abraham Lincoln was born. Mm-hmm. Um, um. Oh, that's the only. Charles Schultz died. Peanuts' daddy died. Oh. It was a sad day for Peanuts. It was. But I guess that's the only birthday I wrote down. But, boy, have I got a surprise for you. No. <laughs> Don't get all excited now. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll do this again. <laughs> all right, one more time. One more time. Boy, have I got a surprise for you. You do? <laughs> That's much better. <laughs> much better. I have a whole bunch of S stuff. Food? No. Well, thank you for saying food at the outset. That's good. Yeah. But um, a, a whole bunch of S stuff. S as in... Stuff. B- b- yeah, sports. I've got sports, sports stuff. Sports stuff. So I'm going to do sports stuff, and then I won't have to do it for the rest of the year, right? 
Sure. So you're going to give a commentary what you thought of the Super Bowl this past Sunday? Well, no, but you're going to listen to my information that I had for last week in preparation. <laughs> and I'm just not going to put it away. I'm going to make you listen to it. All right. What you got? What you got? What you got? That's okay. We can just say hi first, can't we? Hi. <laughs> oh, my goodness. This is going to be a long night. <laughs> Well, you know, I went to bed at 8.20, got up after 2, and I am fully functional and awake. So that means the listeners have their hands full. You are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Oh, yeah. We're going to go, we're going to go, we're not going to take a break. We're going to do a 24-hour show. Did I hear the word we? We. We? We. As in whom? We. We're a group. You mean like? We. Me and thee? Me and thee? Shall we? Nay, 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 nay. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we have a theme tonight. We have a theme tonight. You can watch Patricia Walden struggle over the definition of we. <laughs> we is more than one. <laughs> However, which two is up for grabs? I know one. I'm not sure about the other one. Okay, all right. Theme for tonight. Theme for tonight. Are you ready? Nah, you're never ready. Now <laughs> Well then, that is so rude. <laughs> Good to have you. Are you there? Uh-huh. All right. We're going to get you later. <laughs> Valentine's Day, a theme for Valentine's Day and cartoons. If you don't want to talk about Valentine's Day, you can talk about cartoons. What did you do for Valentine's Day when you were a kid? Did the children in your class, like when you were in grammar school, did you walk in and find valentines on your desk? And um, Kids in my school did that. They, they traded valentines among themselves, which was kind of dumb, but we did it anyway. <laughs> I think it was a popularity contest. Whoever went home with the most valentines was the one who was the popular kid, I guess. I don't know. But anyway, what did you do for Valentine's Day when you were a kid? Or, and you can answer this as well, and or... What is your favorite animated cartoon character? I like I like the Pink Panther. No, 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 not the Pink Panther. I like Wile E. Coyote and Pepe Le Pew. Those are my two favorites, at least for now. Ask me tomorrow and they might be different. So tell me your favorite cartoon character, what you did for Valentine's Day. We still have a trivia question out from last week. We have a Johnny Mathis CD up on this one. Are we ready? Is Walden there? He's running away. I was going to ask if you were home. <laughs> Did you leave? Uh, I was just trying to look for a goodie for Patricia. Oh, good. Okay. Well, you keep looking, and I'll I'll keep asking here. No, no. You, I, if, you if you need me more than a goodie, you, you just ask. Well, I mean, we always need you. Okay. And then I'm here. There is no show without you. I, I'm just a small piece. I, I kill you golf clubs. <laughs> I'm your caddy. You got all the bells and switches over there. Yeah, I'm your caddy. You know? Caddy. Look, Everybody comes. Well, then, anybody who volunteers to be my caddy on a golf course has a death wish. Well, I guess, I guess I'm with you to the end of time. <laughs> if you go out on a golf course for me, the end of time might come sooner than you planned. <laughs> <laughs> okay. For a Johnny Mathis CD, Walden will give you the rundown on this in just a minute when he finishes fussing at what he's fussing at. But we've got Johnny Mathis CDs, brand new CDs that were just released. 
Um, it's a cut that was just released. Johnny Mathis, the name of the album is Let It Be Me. And he sings Nashville, which I think is just absolutely wonderful. There are two versions of What a Wonderful World. Um, Let It Be Me. Make the world go away, crazy, seven nights, you don't know me, love and arms, Shenandoah, I can't wait to hear Shenandoah, and I didn't put one in this week. Well, we can play, we can play a song from the CD. We can? Sure. Well, if you're going to play, I, I better ask the question first. Okay. And if you're going to play a song, can you pick Shenandoah? Okay, what number is it? Oh, dear me. Um, I don't have the numbers, they're not numbers. I mean, I'll have to open one, hold on. Oh, doom, 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 doom. You keep talking. I'll just keep fussing here. Oh. The question, the question for the Johnny Mathis CD, and this one is extra special. Mm -hmm. um, and you do not have to do this one. This, you is, can have this it. is given by the Johnny Mathis people, everybody. This is yeah, a special. This is a special gift given to the Yesterday USA listeners from Johnny and, and his office to you. And this is done shrink black. It is brand new in the jewel case. Yeah, yeah, this, this is, this is, this is opening one. We have more than one. Yeah, we got plenty. We have bunches, and every once in a while, we're going to give one away. You know, don't you just hate it? They feel these things. Oh, gosh. Okay, hold on. I, I am so bad at opening these things. One, only half. <laughs> you keep talking, Walden. Because I'm embarrassing myself here. Okay, well, can you listen? I can listen to you. Okay, I have a little, a little surprise for Patricia. Oh, good, okay. I've been talking about this for a while. And on Lux Radio Theater, Patricia, in 1938, uh -huh. Melville worked with the announcer. He was married to the famous radio actress, Lorraine Tuttle. Okay. He made a little swipe boo-boo at the end of the, of the Lux, of the end of the show. <laughs> Okay. He made a pretty good size boo-boo. <laughs> big boo-boo, right? A really big boo-boo. There we go. And I think he slightly started to say the wrong network he was on. Oh, no. So this is what we're going to hear, everybody. This oh, my. This is from May 38th. I think it's May 16th to 38th. When Melville Rook was wrapping up, uh, you know, Dark Victory during Barbara Stanwyck. And Melville Douglas, and so he's giving the end of the, end of the show credits and everything. So let's just see how he handled this interesting situation. Louis Silvers is from 20th Century Fox Studios, where he directed music for Shirley Temple's new picture, Rebecca Sunnybrook Farm. Your announcer has been Melville Roy. This is the National Columbia Broadcasting System. I get the audience didn't hear it. <laughs> Everybody else did. We now have a National Columbia Broadcasting yes, System. Yes. This is good. Yeah, good. This is good. Okay, yeah. Shenandoah is number eight. But the question is, yeah. and this is a hard one, I've given this information out at least three times over the last maybe eight months. Who rode a chestnut mare named Dusty? Who wrote a chestnut mare named Dusty? And if you really hate that question and you don't want that question, I have some new trivia questions tonight. We'll give you a new trivia question, and if you answer a trivia question, you get to pick some radio shows, and I will send them to you. That's a pretty good deal. That's a great deal. 
Show us if we got Patricia. caller, you get them anyway. You don't even have to answer a question. Show us if we got Patricia's request here. Johnny Mathis saying, hopefully, Shandor. Cool, that's number eight. CD if you like that CD. Wow. Oh, I love that song, and he did a wonderful job with it. That's terrible. You don't say a singer did a great job. He did a wonderful rendition. That's better. Yes? Sure. Sounds good to me. Oh, that that was really pretty. I, I really, really like Shenandoah. That's a great song. I don't even know where it came from. Do you know who wrote it? Uh-uh. Not a thing. If you're on a CD, you probably can look at the liner notes there. Hello there, Carl. You're on the air. Yeah, hi, folks. It's Ralph. Hi, Ralph. Oh, Ralph, how are you? Who wound you guys up tonight? Wow. <laughs> that bad, huh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're sitting here laughing. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's good. But if you sat good. there and said, mm-hmm, I don't think so, mm-hmm. that would be bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have to tell people what you sent to me this week. Go ahead. Well, you can tell about the mistletoe. You have to tell about that. But I didn't even tell Walden that Ralph sent me an email this week that about our not being on the air last week. Yes. Finished with, don't do that again. <laughs> when I finished holding my sides, that was very nice of you to say that. Don't put it, it was like, my father, don't do that again. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Well, How are you? I'll do it again, all right? Yeah, I won't do it again. Well, we didn't have a choice on that. Live 365 shut us down. And they shut, it wasn't just us, they shut down more than 5,000 stations. Oh, my goodness. And um, because they were, they, they said they were doing major upgrades and all the halls. And, then, you know, our system needs to do that every once in a while. And that was the once in a while. We got picked. I don't think it was fair, but we were the ones who got picked. And we were back on a little after 1.30. No, we weren't back on. We were on. We never got on um, until a little after 1.30. But it was Live 365 that shut down. 
Well, okay, we, uh, we usually leave your station on all the time. Uh, that particular night, we listened to one of the CDs that you sent us. <laughs> so you had you had something in memory of Walden and Patricia. Yeah, but I, I really missed you guys. Oh, that's so nice. Thank you for saying that. I'm sorry we weren't here. We missed it, too. You know, I mean, we only had half a show. Yeah, that's right. I, yeah, I, I guess I went to sleep. I didn't try it after that time, so. Well, don't do that again. No, that's the last time. Okay. Turn off. <laughs> well, it's good to hear from you. Um, I want you to tell people that I told everybody you sent me a box of mistletoe, and I expected a little in an envelope, you know. I, this thing is the size of a shoebox, and it's full of mistletoe. And please tell them how you got it and what else you put in the box. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I, I blew it out of the tree with a 12-gauge shotgun. <laughs> and I sent Patricia the empty shell. It's in the box and it's lumpy. <laughs> you know I don't like lumps in my food, but in an envelope it's okay. And I open the box and here is this mountain of mistletoe, which is really quite pretty. It wasn't, you know, I, I thought maybe it was kind of dried out and ratty and chewed up or anything, but it was really nice. That's what mistletoe is supposed to look like. Except it didn't have the little berries on it. Well, you know, I mean, you can't have berries all year long. I gotta find out when it is. I'm gonna shoot you down some more. I'll buy some grapes and stick them on. But in, the, in this box is an envelope. I said, oh, this is cool. <laughs> so I open it up, and it's got this empty shotgun shell in there with one shot written on the side of it. So we are now talking with one shot from Northern California, and that was so nice of you to do that. Thank you for the mistletoe. Thank you for the laugh. I had a good time. Oh, it's my pleasure. I hope you get some use out of the mistletoe. <laughs> I told you I was going to hydrate it and plant it. I haven't had a chance to do that. But with um, um, a parasite, it's a parasitic plant, they don't disappear. It's hard to knock them off. So I think it'll probably fare very well as long as I give it some water and stick it in something that will feed it. I'll put it in dirt or something. I don't know. But I thought if I went out in the yard and put these things on, you know, you're supposed to be able to put them in the in the crotch of a tree or you know, stick them up against a bush, and then they'll anchor and start to grow. And I figure if I went out with all that you sent to me and everything that you sent took hold, it would suck the life out of this landscape in about 12 months. It would be <laughs> just gone. So I'm going to be very judicious. I'm going to sneak downstairs, and um, we've got some nice bushes down there. So I'll, I'll put some in a bush and see what happens. Yeah? Okay. I hope you don't kill your bushes. <laughs> They're not my bushes. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess it's okay then, right? I suppose. I suppose. I'll never, I'll never tell. <laughs> I think you will. Oh, okay. You're a fun person. Do you know the answer to the question, who rode a chestnut mare named Dusty? Well, you know, I have something in mind. I, I'm, I'm not at all sure. Okay. Was it the Tales of the Texas Rangers? No, nope, but he did have an unusual horse. You're right, but no. Nope. Yeah, I remember his horse. Yep, I, I'm afraid I don't know that one. Oh, Ralph. Dusty. Mm. Oh, my heart is broken here. It wasn't Hoppy. It wasn't Hoppy. Nope. You only get one guess. 
No. Uh, well, we know it wasn't Hoppy. Who was Hop along Cassidy for us? <coughs> I don't remember him. His horse's name. Uh, hmm. I'm lucky I remember Hop along Cassidy. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to give you a real live, honest to goodness question. Okay. All right. Yes. Okay. Oh, this one's hard, though. This is really hard, so I'll, I'll, I'll accept. I don't know. All right. Who did Herman the Duck live with? Herman the Duck. Oh yeah, Gracie Allen. Oh my gosh, you got it! I heard Tony in the background. Yeah, she's Get it, Tony? Uh, I, I did. I, I'm familiar. Yeah, she had a duck. Yes. Yes, Herman the Duck, and it started out as Henrietta the Duck. Yeah, well, I had a Henrietta Duck. It's your whole, that's how come you remember, I, I remember that now. Yeah, I had Donald, Henrietta, and Bertha. And Bertha, I never figured out Bertha. How did Bertha get in there? My father. Oh, bless his heart, he was such a neat guy, we have to give him that. <laughs> he really was, I mean, anybody who wakes a kid up and says, you don't feel good today, right? <laughs> yeah, well, that's good. Is a, is a good guy. Let's go fishing. It'll make you feel better. That's great. That is just great. Well, I've got a whole bunch of stuff. If there's something in my stuff that, let me see what I've got here. Um, last week, I wrote down some stuff. Since you weren't with us, let me see what I've got from last week. Don't go away. Keep talking to me. I'll be, I'm here. Um, we got wound up tonight, huh? Absolutely. But, you know, I mean, Walton <laughs> said something to me just before we went on the air. <laughs> um, I, I asked him if we could do something, and he said, your wish is your demand. Nothing <laughs> like it. Which, which just cracked me up. Okay, look at all these great things that we've got. We've got the live, these are things that nobody has asked for or nobody has asked recently. Got the lives of Harry Lyme with Orson Welles. Boston Blackie, Casey Crime Photographer, Dragnet, Philo Vance, Nightbeat, One Man's Family, Jack Armstrong, Dimension X, Paul Harvey, Wild Bill Hickok, Tales of the Texas Rangers, and I've still got more on page two. Don't go away. Um, do you like British shows, or is it just one poll you like? Oh, oh no, I, uh, in general, uh like a lot of, lot of, that's who we listened to last week was Rumpel all night long. Oh, you know, they're really good. They're, they're done so well. I have a whole bunch of British shows. I've got some mysteries. I've got some, do you like detectives? Mystery detectives? British detectives? Yeah, sure. Oh, good grief. I've got a world of them. Okay, British detectives. You got it. I think you and I are the only ones in the whole wide world who like this stuff. Yeah, I, okay, I wrote down British Detectives for Ralph. All right. You will have a variety. So you are warm, you are not warm, you are snowed in, you are not snowed in. What's happening in Northern California? It's beautiful here the last few days. Start out cold in the morning, got up into the 60s, and uh, down in the valley below us, I heard it was in the 70s. No, really? Yes. Oh, that's cool. Is that going to stay with you now for the rest? No, it's hard to say. But the trees down in the Reading area, which is only 35 miles from here, uh -huh. they're budding out already. Really? Honest to God, we went down last week. I said, I don't believe it. Our our trees up here are not. It's cooler up here. Yeah, well, they're smart to stay in bed for a while. Yeah, let them rest. 
unless if they get out now, they're going to freeze their feet. Yeah, we, we spent the whole day burning leaves and... and oh, you know, you know, the smell of burning leaves is something I miss from being, you know, not being up north. That was even even smelling the leaves in the woods. Yes. I miss that. I miss that. There are some things I miss. Lilac? A, a lot of smoke around here today. Oh, really? Not only I had the fires going, but I also was smoking some meat on my smoker, and that produces quite a bit of smoke. What are we having for dinner? Well, uh, I had a steak, and I, I, I just smoked it mildly for about an hour, and then we, then we grilled it, and it was really delicious. Now, when you smoke it, it doesn't cook. It doesn't cook? But at a very low temperature, you know, you want to keep your smoker at about 150. Okay. What? 175 degrees, and, it, you know, it would take a long, long time. Pretty toasty. A couple of weeks ago, I did salmon, and I, I did that was, I think that was eight hours. And that stuff came out like, oh, it came out like candy. <laughs> Well, you're making us hungry, and I'm so glad that you mentioned food because now I'm okay for the rest of the night. Dar. <laughs> this is good. This is good. I knew you were watching Al for me. All the time. All the time. Except don't do that again, Patricia. <laughs> we won't. Not unless it's imposed on us. <laughs> oh, I thought maybe it was because the, uh, the changes that were made in, in your station. Oh, no, no, no. I don't think any changes have gone through. I'm, I'm sure they haven't gone through yet. At, okay. At Yesterday USA. No, it was Live 365, and they put us on notice. Um, I guess we didn't say it often enough the week before, and I apologize for that. Um, they, we knew ahead of time that we were going to have some service interruptions. I didn't think it was going to be no service at all, yeah. but that's what it turned out to be. Now, this week, I'm on a business trip, so, so there will be no live show Saturday, Monday, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday from California. Now, that's not my fault, Ralph. I know. It's me. Okay, well, it's me. I sent you an email. Yes, you should. And he's going to one of these S things. That's, I mean, he's giving us up for an S thing. What, Seattle. What, what is the next thing? I, <laughs> I'll say the word one time. Sports. Oh, sports. Oh. That's it. Now I won't say it again. No, next, no well, next, next week it's a business trip. I'm trying to... Oh, is it? Yeah. I thought that was, um, you were going to a sports event. No, no, no. No, no. Oh, uh, okay. You're forgiven. Next week it's a business trip. See if we can bring home the bacon. Well, this is a B event. Yes, right. <laughs> yes. Oh. <laughs> I was listening when you were talking with your guest, yeah. and you mentioned celery tonic. Yes. Oh, yes. Do you know it? Yeah, I know. Did you, do you drink it, or how did you? No, I, I, have, I have tasted it. What is it? Do you like it? No. <laughs> do I blame you? It's, no. It's, it's a celery. Yes, it's, a, it's, a, it's celery tonic. And the brand is Cell Ray, C-E-L-R-A-Y, yes. I can see it now. It came in rather small bottles. Uh-huh. Like smaller, I would say smaller than a Coca-Cola bottle. Uh-huh. And uh, the only place I ever saw it was in a, at uh, Kosher Deli's. And that's that's what the information said. It's, um, it, it's typically with kosher food, like something like pastrami sandwich or something like that, and it's served on the side, and it's supposed to be very excellent 
with salty foods especially, and I think anything made with celery is like... Uh, I, I tasted it once, but no, never again. <laughs> well, maybe somebody else out there who, I, you know, I mean, kosher delis can't be the only place, that, and you can buy it on the internet. I found it on the internet. Oh, is it still around, huh? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Don't buy it. <laughs> <laughs> Ralph endorsement, don't buy it. That's a pretty good endorsement. Well, I have a recipe for it. How do you really? I did. I mean, I really did my homework. This is from three weeks ago. Fibber mentions celery tonic. He was a floor walker. And he was, and instead of wearing a carnation like most floor walkers, he was going to wear a two-week-old orchid. And he, was, he said it would make the rest of the floor walkers look cheaper than a bottle of celery tonic at a champagne dinner. And I had never oh. heard of celery tonic before. So there I went. And I got a recipe. I found a recipe. My goodness, you can make What do you do? You, you grind up celery? Or <laughs> it, it is adapted from Peter Levitt at Saul's Deli uh. in Berkeley, California. And it's 20 minutes of preparation time plus cooling. And this will yield 12 to 16 servings, and you can have all of mine. <laughs> so half a cup of sugar. And wait, you know, baby, this isn't too bad after all. Two cups of vodka. Oh, vodka. I didn't know about this. Wait a minute. <laughs> I'm, I don't think this is the stuff that they sell with the sandwiches. <laughs> this one looks pretty good, Ralph. <laughs> This is good. This is good. All right. Forgive me for even turning my nose up here. Half a cup of sugar, two cups of vodka. Holy moly. Two teaspoons of celery seeds, seltzer or club soda, and thin lemon slices for garnish. In a small saucepan, you gotta you gotta cook. You gotta turn on the stove here. Uh, you combine the sugar and a half a cup of water over low heat until the sugar is dissolved. Let it cool and refrigerate until it's ready to serve. In another small saucepan, you heat the vodka, and why bother to do anything with it is, is my question. You just hang in there with it. So anyway, you heat the vodka, put the celery seeds in it, ignite the vodka. Oh, okay. And simmer until the flames subside. Yeah, so you burn off all the alcohol. Well, the alcohol is gone. What's the good of having vodka then? Yeah, well, it's, then I guess it could have been in a soft drink. I don't think I've ever tasted vodka. Does that, does that have a taste to it? No, not a distinctive kind of taste. It's, it's just an alcoholy taste. But uh, Yeah, okay. To, uh, we used to freeze it. You know, it, it, it's alcohol, so it doesn't freeze well, but used to make it as cold as you could possibly make it, and it would actually thicken up a little bit. No kidding. Oh, that's why Russia, it works well in Russia, because it's so cold. This is good. Okay, for each serving, you have to add about one teaspoon of celery infusion. I don't know what celery infusion is. That's infused celery. Oh, you know, maybe the, the vodka and the celery seeds, that's the infusion, huh? Yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah, okay, so for each serving, you add one tablespoon of celery infusion and two tablespoons of sugar syrup in a tall glass. You fill it with ice and then put salsa in. My goodness. Yeah, I mean, I really went to town on this. I even got some information on salsa. Are you impressed? Oh, yeah, we used to get the, um, 
the seltzer and the, the uh... Oh, with the, with the CO2 cartridges? No, no, uh, there was a soda place on, on our block back in New York. Uh-huh. And they had the, uh, the bottles of seltzer with the uh, valve on top. And, uh, you know, the ones you always see in the movies, they yeah. out. <laughs> right, it's carbon dioxide, um, pressurized carbon dioxide type stuff. They're siphon-like bottles. Yeah, I, that's that's. Did you just run around with? But uh, those bottles were specially made because of the pressure that they have to withstand. Uh huh. So if you had to pick a country where seltzer came from, mm. Walden, you want to play? Seltzer. Uh, Where did seltzer? Was in Seltzer, Iowa. Say what? <laughs> I guess I see you listening. Uh, my guess would be uh, Canada. That's one. Ralph, do you have one? I think they made it in Astoria, Queens. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> this is good. According oh, to this, it is named after the German town of Niederseltzer. Ah. It is known for hmm. its springs. Hmm. And seltzer was originally sold in the thick bottles with carbon dioxide pressurized metal siphon tops. Yep. Like the Three Stooges. So... Yep. That's what I remember. Okay. Neater Seltzer. Neater S-E-L-T-E-R-S. -E now I'm depending on the internet to know what, how to spell these things. Seltzers. Neater Seltzers in Germany. Huh. That was the name of the, the, the town? That's the name of the town. Every time. See all the stuff you learn on this show? Oh, it's amazing. I know. <laughs> and none of it, it's, it, it's what I call useless but fun. Oh, it's definitely fun. It's definitely fun. It is not very much use when you're trying to get on a subway and you don't have a token. <laughs> Do they still take tokens? Uh, the last time we were back there, yeah, yeah you had to get, uh, you had to go to the, the window and get these tokens, but I remember when it was a nickel, and now it's a, it's a couple of three bucks. <laughs> Not enough to take your breath away. How do you get from point A to point B and still have enough to buy lunch? Yeah, I'll tell you, it's the only way to travel in New York. Uh, you don't want to drive a car over there. No way. No way. I mean, even if you could get through and you get to where you want to go, it would cost you your firstborn in a parking garage. Yeah, absolutely right, yeah. <clears throat> My goodness. Last well, time we visited New York, and uh, uh, we went to New Jersey to see my brother. And we went through Manhattan. It was a big mistake. <laughs> it, was, it was even on a weekend. And it was, oh, wow. It was almost two hours to get from the Queensboro Bridge to the Holland Tunnel. Ouchie, ouchie, ouchie. Boy, that's rough on the weekends. Oh, they had... I've expected that on a weekend. It's closed for street fairs and... Oh, oh my... Oh, God. never thought about that. Horrible. No. Oh, well. Okay, well, next week there's going to be a test on seltzer water. But he won't... Won't nobody be here. Oh, that's right. Well, nobody's going to pass the test then. <laughs> All right, I'll save the test for the following week. We're going to have a test on seltzer water. And everybody has to remember where it came from. Neater seltzers. Neater seltzers.
I have to look. I have to look up seltzer uh, on the internet and see what I can find out about it. <laughs> Please do, and you can be the teacher for, for two weeks from tonight. My goodness. I know. Uh, listen, you you guys uh, carry on. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna call it a night pretty soon. Uh, you're going to abandon us? Uh, I'll have you on. You'll be at my elbow all night long. Uh -huh. Bless you. Okay, British detectives will be on your way. Thank you so much. My pleasure. You have a great night. Bye, Tony. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, Walden, have a safe trip. Thank you, Al. Alright, guys. Alright. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, I find some goodies, and I found some goodies. You can always give us a call. 714-545-2071. I was thinking, Patricia, your guest on March 19th, Claire Charles, uh -huh. wrote about Betty Hutton. Betty Hutton's terrific talent. In the movies, a singer. Uh-huh. Everything. Even with the uh, singer on the Bob Hope radio show. Uh-huh. I have a song that she's known for. Oh, cool. I don't know if you ever heard it. This was one of her big hits in World War II. And I think it'd be right down your alley, Patricia. Oh, really? Oh, oh yeah. Eh? Here we go. Betty Hutton, everybody, in 1944. <laughs> Must sit down for a minute. I'm ready to fall in a heap. Willie's been fed, and I've tucked him in bed. Thank goodness the darling's asleep. He's a wonderful boy, and a joy, and a boon. Ah, gee, you should have seen him this afternoon. Bang went the bridge, slammed down went the table, crash went the china tray. Buddy said I couldn't help it, my walking horse ran away. Rip, rip went the curtain, wham went the window, crunch went the new buffet. And I heard him tell his daddy, my walking horse ran away. Somehow, Indians got into our front room. Our cowboy gonna went boom, 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 boom. Slam went the screen door, smash went the mirror, looks like I'll soon be gray. But he smiles, and what's the difference? And maybe some Mother's Day. I'll remember when his rockin' horse ran away. Got up early this morning for a flimsy negligee. Had to hurry to fix the breakfast and get Daddy on his way. Figured I could get the paper so the neighbors wouldn't see. So I sneaked out on the porch, but very, very quietly. Wham! Went the dishpan, then came a holler, off went the neighbor's shade. It was Mother's little darling, out on a commando raid. Came home late from a picture. I was tired, my shoes were tight. Took off my stockings, dropped my girdle. Got undressed and pulled the light. Boy! Slipped into my nightgown, then tiptoed across the floor. Better have a look at Junior. So I peeked into his door. Pine, 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 went a cowbell, we went a whistle, I nearly had a stroke. It was Mother's precious baby, just having his little joke. Always, just when I'm breathing a peaceful sigh. There's G-men, coppers and robbers, and high-ho silver! Bam, went the bookcase, food went the fruit bowl, and boom went the glass bowl. 
But he smiles and what's the difference? And maybe some Mother's Day I'll remember when. Bang went the lamp, down went the table, crash went the tray, rip, rip went the curtain, wham went a window, clang went a bell, wham went a whistle, bam went a pan, slam went a door. My rocking horse ran away by Betty Hutton. Well, guess what? What? You're starting to look pretty good after that one. <laughs> wow. Um, she's happy the kid is asleep. I'd be happy if he got arrested. <laughs> My rocking horse got away. It was a little more than a rocking horse. Wow. Okay, let's start again. Hello, Walden. Hi, Patricia. Are we having a good time? We sure are. Okay, we need some calls. What did you do for Valentine's Day when you were a kid? Did you swap Valentine's when you were kids in classrooms? Your favorite animated cartoon character. Hello, dear. You're on the air. Okay, this thing about this horse is driving me nuts. <laughs> Could it have been J.B. Kendall? No, it couldn't. Rat. <laughs> I mean, that was a yes-no question. The answer is no, it wasn't J.B. Kendall. And double rat. <laughs> I'm very sorry, sir. Rick Ponsett, but that was Scar. I thought maybe it might have been Jingles, but that was Joker. Yep. And we know it wasn't Betty Hutton, because her horse ran away. You know, you're doing a Walden here. I'll ask Walden a question, and he'll say... Hmm. And he'll give me every piece of information. Oh, I know. The wagon train. I mean, he's like a wagon train. The answer is in the center, but he's a wagon train. You know, he just circles this thing. And he never gets every piece of information I don't want. For years, I got away with saying that the five-string banjo was invented by Joe Sweeney. <laughs> who, who got you on it? Uh, I read it in a Pete Seeger How to Play the Banjo book, mm. and it wasn't true. Seeger <gasps> told a lie? Well, he repeated folklore. Uh-oh, that's not a but good thing. But there was a Joe Sweeney, and he did strongly help to popularize the beloved five-string banjo, but he did not invent it. So it goes. So it goes. Her boyhood myth. Dashed. I'm really sorry about the horse. The question is, who rode a chestnut mare named Dusty? And that's for a Johnny Mathis question. She or a Johnny Mathis CD. Wow. All yeah. right. Would you like... Record player came with Johnny Mathis record. You're a record player, Dick? Yeah. Well, I got the record player for Christmas and several records, and one of the records was Johnny Mathis. Oh, how cool. Well, you can't have the CD. I do like to listen to, but I liked it, too. Okay. Those days, I we've got We've got another 10 CDs to give away throughout the rest of the year, so you still have an opportunity to um, to get a Johnny Mathis, but and not... now I can't go to sleep. <laughs> I'm very sorry. You may answer this question, and you'll never mention it again if somebody answers it. Oh, yes, I will, because... Uh, now, listen, Richard, get a grip. Are you ready? 
Okay. Gave this information a minimum of three times in the last eight months. A minimum. A minimum, a minimum. Yes, but your show runs for hours and hours when some of us manage to sleep. You sound, you sound like Carl Sagan with billions and billions. Billions and billions. Billions and billions of stars. Okay, well, since we can't give you a Johnny Mathis CD, would you like a different question? Yeah. <laughs> well, don't get enthusiastic about this, okay? All right? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I can't be the hero. At least I can be the hero's best. Yeah, well, you, you, can, you can be the first mate. <laughs> okay. The hero's first mate. Okay, let's see. How, how involved are you in listening to old-time radio? Do you listen to them a lot? A uh, fair amount. Fair amount. Okay, so if I give you a hard one, that's okay? Yeah. Okay. I not. I failed once. Right, I can fail twice. I don't care. <laughs> What were the first names of the husband and wife in the Dickersons? Blanche and... Jack, I think. Oh, you're close. Oh, oh well. <laughs> oh, come on. I didn't make it to be on Jeopardy either. <laughs> Did you try out? I Blanche and never heard from him. Blanche and I don't know. Yes, you do. Well, probably about three o'clock. I'll wake up and go, you know, Blanche and whatever. I don't know. Oh, crikey, you were almost there. Is that Walden again? Yeah, he's I'm trying to help out. I'm trying to give a clue. He's rubbing it in because he knows. Yeah, right. Well, he knows who the Dickersons are. He just can't give me his first name. Um, did you hear Walden say Jack is close? Jack? Jack is really close. He said close. Jack, and he said that's close. John, Mac? There you go. You did it. Was it? John. John, you're right. John and Blanche. Was it, is it Blanche? Yep. Blanche, uh -huh. Blanche and John right. Dickerson. Oh, God, they were so good. And actually, <laughs> when I interviewed the son, he said it was based upon his true life story. His dad was a comedy writer, and that's the way he snored, and that was the routine at night. So he just <laughs> trained. Sounds like a winner to me. He trained my story on the, on the paper. Any man who has been married understands that. And the woman who has been married <laughs> understands that. Especially if you've if you've gone through having a wife going through menopause. Now let's keep it upbeat here, folks. <laughs> no, it's very interesting. <laughs> what a nice this is, Richard. Let's take a right turn here. You never know who you're gonna be talking to, and you know. Yeah, I know it's scary. Um, it's just you know it's uh, not boring. No, it's never boring. Uh uh. This show is never boring. <laughs> Richard, what shows would you like? Hmm. Do you happen to have any um, sure. of the Goon Show? As a matter of fact, I do. The Goon Show. 
I used. Are you surprised? Supposed to no. Nobody has the goon show. That's terrific. I should be surprised. But he's not. Uh, he's I, not. You know, I. Now I'm going to have to try to find really obscure, offbeat, little known. Here, can you get them the goon show? See if I can catch something. That you... Or else he's got pulled a Fred. You know. Oh yeah. <laughs> Please, you know, Fred, please, no instructions here, if you would. <laughs> that man has sent me through my caves more than once. After Lights Out in a boarding school, I'd mm -hmm. listen to it. And, uh, you know, if I started laughing, everybody thought I was, you know, having a... <laughs> Richard, go to your room. <laughs> Richard? Okay. Go to your room. But I love that show. Well, you shall have that show. I do have it. And um, I have it because someone, I think it was Brian Hendrickson, asked for it a bunch of months ago, and I found it, and I've got it. The Goon Show, folks, for those of you who may not know, was a British show, and it was more or less a forerunner of Monty Python, sort of. I think some of the same people were involved. Mm -hmm. You are absolutely right. And I believe, if you hold on one second, there was another show that something Idiots Weekly, does that sound right? I, I don't know. Hold on. Let's see. What that. Today's my, tonight's my night to say, I don't know. Well, I don't know. All right. Goon's Idiot Weekly. Yes. Goon Show and Idiot Weekly, there was... Uh, the Goon Show had 30-minute shows and skits, and Idiot Weekly was not a spin-off, but like a continuation of The Goon Show under a different name. And I've got, oh, about 20 of those shows as well. Mm. I'll send both of them. Now, let's see. Who was the guy that did um, Beanie and Cecil? Oh, uh, that was Stan Freeberg and Dodge Butler. Stan Freeberg. Uh, Stan Freeberg's radio show always kind of reminded me of of uh, the Goon Show. Mm -hmm. What was Cecil's full name, please? Cecil the Sea Sick Sea Serpent. Boy, are you good! And what famous celebrity? That was his favorite show. That, that's my Albert Einstein. Correct. Oh, you mentioned that. Yep. You mentioned that to, last week. Just wanted to make sure people uh, remembered. Eating any. Okay, Richard. Here's your final question. Washington said, excuse me, I have to leave now. It's time for Beanie and Sue. <laughs> Could you hold the atom for now, please? <laughs> this is good. This is good. Okay, here's your last question, Richard. Uh, Are you ready? Sure. Okay. Who wrote a chestnut mare named Dusty? That's the question, everybody, for... The I know. I've, uh, you know, I tried to say that it's J.B. Tyndall. It's not him. No, it's not J.B. Tyndall, and you only get one guess. Well, you know, I missed it. I know you missed it. I, I was joshing you there. So, okay, you will have... I don't think anybody did. Nobody I think Nobody wrote, uh, wrote Dusty's? Yeah, somebody wrote Dusty's. You did. You, drove, you wore... You wore... You <laughs> got me so confused that my tongue is getting in front of my eye teeth and I can't see what I said. What? <laughs> 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 
one of my goals in life, by the way, mm-hmm. is to get a hold of a copy of Fibber McGee when he did his long bit about being a reporter, you know, where, where he had one of his soliloquies mm-hmm. of his title as a newspaper reporter and to memorize that. Because it, now, are you talking about one of his alliteration? Yes. In the middle of a show? Yes. Okay, so it's somewhere within a Fibber McGee and Molly show. Yeah, where he's talking about being a newspaper reporter. Okay, I don't recall yeah. hearing that one. I mean, he's he's got some goodies. Okay. Well, if I come across it, it's yours. I'm undeserving. Well. Oh, no, about dust. We'll square that away later. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be in your debt forever and ever and ever. Forever and ever and ever? Really? Yeah. Oh, man, I'll start looking now. Or until next week, whichever <laughs> comes first. And well, next week we're not going to be here. Walden is bailing out for a week. Oh, no. Oh, Mr. Bill. Yes. And I think the week after that we have the great the great uh, birthday shindigs in the wild woods. Of- oh, that's right. Oh. You would. Yes, you would. That would be, sure. The um, the following Saturday is the 26th. So you're going to miss us for two weeks in a row. Yeah. We'll I don't know com- how you'll stand it, but... We'll come on late that night, though. I mean, I don't think they got Wi-Fi up there. I mean, I'm going to a place that's called the Thickets. <laughs> the Hunting Lodge. and I mean, on the road to the Great Angola Prison Farm. <laughs> and... <laughs> and uh, I mean, cell phones don't work up there. I don't, I don't think they got Wi-Fi. <laughs> well, if you don't have a cell phone, <laughs> well, I don't know. Well, we'll send the dogs out after you if you don't show up the following week, okay? Okay. All right. Goon Show will be out. You will enjoy it, and it will include Idiot Weekly, whatever that is. It's supposed to be a continuation of the Goon Show, and you've got it. Well, I hope so. Somebody will come up with the answer about this horse. I, Put me out of my misery. Well, let's see who can come up with Driving me nuts now for how many weeks have you been doing this? Oh, just two. It just seems longer. Well, you know, here I was stuck in the snow here going, who rode that danged horse? <laughs> and it still didn't work, did it? I should have called over to Fort Worth. Somebody in Fort Worth is bound to know. I mean, they know all about all that cowboys. Oh, there's somebody out there. Let's see who else can give it a shot, and we'll get the CD out to you. Give us a call later. Okay. And wine. (laughs) 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 We'll talk to you later. Thank you, Rich. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 714-545-2071, a hot number, to the one, the only, the talented, the lovely... The brilliant Patricia. Adorable. 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 That's right. Oh, good grief. I thought I raised you better than that. I know. You know. Did your, parent, your parents would never say that. What? I thought we raised you better than that. Yeah, they probably would have. Well, <laughs> well, well you know, my mother is a disciplinarian on the dinner table. So we boys have very good manners. And, but, you know, if we sort of swag off, she'll say, now, you know, you wouldn't do that if so-and-so were here. Ah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All 
say, we're going to patent your mom and dad. I know. Take out a trademark or something. I don't know. We have to protect them somehow. That's true. That's true. 714-545-2071. I've got new trivia questions tonight. We've got a theme of Valentine's Day and cartoons. What did you do for Valentine's Day? And which is your favorite animated cartoon character? I like Wiley Coyote and Peppy Le Pew. Peppy is so cute. Oh, I like I, Peppy. Ask me tomorrow and there'll probably be two others. But Wiley Coyote is a good one. Poor Wiley. He's got acne everything and then all bombs. That's <laughs> <laughs> too good. I have a cutie for you. And good. I'm sure this happened more than once, but I happened on this piece of information. Mm-hmm. show. It's a Joan Crawford item. Who have we got? Florida, you're on air. Well, you're early. Uh, well, early, but you're early. What are you doing up at this hour? I couldn't sleep. Oh, oh did we keep you awake? No, I just one of those spells. I can't sleep very well, so I've just been listening. And now I don't know the name of the horse yet. Okay, yeah. well, it's not the name of the horse. We have the name of the horse. We just well, yeah, I meant yeah. The rider. I'm sorry. I'll get there eventually. Yeah. But I hadn't, it hadn't happened yet. Okay. You're really starting some of that mistletoe. Let me <laughs> explain what, what you're getting yourself into. Yeah, I know. It's pretty awful, isn't it? No. What's what's going to happen is you'll get all this stuff started all around that apartment building. Huh? And you're going to look out the window one night. <laughs> And see 10,000 people out there crawling around under the, bush, under the bushes kissing each other. <laughs> now, that's something I hadn't thought of. I thought you were going to tell me that it was either going to crawl through the window and kill me or it was going to take down trees and shrubs, but I never thought about the kissing trees. Hmm. Well, no, I think that's what's going to happen. Just as soon as everybody finds it, somebody, and then some ambitious person will be out there in the parking lot selling tickets. <laughs> I, I'm ambitious. Okay. Dollar a piece, you think? More? I get 10%. Oh, that's only 10 cents on the dollar. I better charge more. No, oh, no, I mean, that's my commission. Whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. You know, and they used to have kissing booths, and they usually charge a dollar a kiss. Why does he get 10%? I'm out in the parking lot. It was my idea. <sighs> boy, oh, boy. Okay, 10%. And I'm on my honor to tell you how much I take in, right? Yeah, yeah, I have to take your word for it. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> I'm honest. I would tell you. That's I guess you, you've got a good way out. I'd, I've, I would tell you the truth. However, I would have to personally test every bit of mistletoe before I sold the opportunity to, oh. you know? Okay. I mean, I think, I think running quality control is important. Yeah. I sound enthusiastic about this. Well, I'm just waiting to see what happens. Oh, okay. All right. I'm expecting that this stuff is just going to start taking over, and I hope mistletoe doesn't take fingerprints. You know, like they could dust the mistletoe and find my fingerprint. I don't. Oh, that's good. That's good. Ralph would know. Uh, Ralph, if you're listening, we need to know how long the mistletoe has been growing in your tree. 
and then we'll have an idea how fast this stuff grows and how quickly I have no, to... No, of course it's been a lot of years, but when I would go hunting and stuff like that, you didn't really see it all that often. Um, I mean, you didn't get into a grove of trees and every one of them had mistletoe in it. It, it just... I guess it, it varies where you are and stuff like that, but I just don't remember it being all that plentiful. It, it was around, but, you know, nothing that um, you would be standing there in amazement with how much of it there was. Hmm. Lynn um, Noyce, who is out in Arizona, he's one of our DJs, and he said he used to take his kids to a park, not his kids, his, his son, who was a Cub Scout, and he would take the whole Cub Scout, what do you call it, a troop, a den? No, nope, no, you take the pack. The pack, okay, his whole Cub Scout pack, and turn them loose in a woods, a public park, and they would come back with mistletoe, and they'd sell it, they, you know, put it in envelopes and, and sell it for a dollar a piece. So I guess it's pretty plentiful out in Arizona. I've never seen it. I, of course, it's so high up. I mean, how many people walk around with their heads up? looking into trees you don't survive very long if you do that but i don't know i've never seen it well i'm deprived you still have you still have a possibility everybody can sell something i know years ago and there may still be sites on the internet for this but somebody got ambitious and was selling tumbleweeds <laughs> now you know that's that is creative now, what kind of a box would you need for a tumbleweed? A tumbleweed box, I guess. It's so wide open, This is a good night. We're having a good night. And you have the Sons of the Pioneers singing in the background on your website. Oh, there you go. I think it was. I don't know what I heard about. Now, I didn't know when one of these, and I don't know what I was there. I just heard an interview with somebody that was doing it. And they were using that as background music. But, you know, so I think one thing's sure, you wouldn't have a lot of overhead about stock. Well, I just think Patricia and Ralph can go in business together and put mistletoe for sale on the web. <laughs> she can shoot it down. Patricia can do the marketing and advertising. And they could, they, they, yeah. we, could, we could be off the ground. Especially around Christmas time. I know. Big go. I know. Well, Shotgun Harry out, or Shotgun Ralph out in California, he's good. All Jedi. One so, shot. That's so what he calls himself. I guess, One I, shot. I guess we better get the website ready for it by November. I don't know. Ralph, did you blow the top of the tree off? I hope you can find some more, Ralph. Yeah. November. That's mm -hmm. the time to shoot it down. Yeah. November. You're right. Yep. Oh, well, how would you want to find it? We were. Um, our Melon was talking about painting towers and how it was and you know it never occurs to me that nobody's ever seen that or know how about the mitts yeah i've never seen that well the thing is mitts are out there for a lot of things and it's the same kind of mitts and you've got uh cheap mitts and good quality mitts and short nap and line nap mitts and stuff like that just like you do paint rollers or whatever but people don't realize that those things are great for washing a car, dusting furniture, or applying Johnson's wax. <laughs> Very good. Well, I was wondering if you could use it to paint walls. Can you use it? Yeah, you, you can. Um, just the same as you would a roller or something. It's just, you know, I think you would probably have to 
put it on a circular motion type thing uh, uh, to get the marks out of it. But like on a tower, uh, you're dabbing more than brushing. Uh -huh. And you got so many tight places you're having to dab it in. Can't. I guess you're doing some wiping, but you're doing an awful lot of dabbing. And like you said, you stick your hand in the bucket and and uh, then pull it out and dab it on. Uh, some mints have liners in them, some do not. But when you're doing this, let me assure you, when you've painted a tower, you're painted too. From that, oh my goodness. your head to the tip of your toes, you are covered. You'd have to be, even just with the wind up there. Well, now that's another thing. He was talking about the guy using a sprayer and painting uh, all these Lexus. Well, whether you're using a sprayer or a mitt or whatever, the wind will carry the drops. <laughs> and we have had cases we'd have to wrap buildings, uh, have them to move cars. And in some situations, you have to tent a tower. Now, you see it a lot on water tanks, but it happens on regular towers, too. Now, it's not often because you try to see everything is clear. But, man, like, you can paint cars, buildings, everything you can imagine. And it's, it can be a nightmare. Yeah, I can, I can dig that. Oh, dear. Oh my. And then, of course, you know, everybody's got a valuable antique, even though it was a junker sitting in the yard for 50 yeah. years. Something like that. When you get a little paint on it. It becomes a collector's item, yeah? Yeah, exactly. A very valuable collector's item. Oh, very. <laughs> and uh, it's, um, it, it can be some bad news, but, you know, it has to be done. And the deal with the bands he was talking about, they're using what's called an international orange and white. Uh -huh. It's FAA-approved color, and that you have no choice about. What a lot of people don't know is that up to 550 feet, you have seven alternating colors. Um, you have four bands of orange and three bands of white. You're starting and finishing with orange, you know, top and bottom. Mm -hmm. uh, but they, they alternate. After that, in height, you have 13 bands. How interesting. Well, probably is isn't, it but, um, most people, I'm sure, never knew that. Does that make it easier for aircraft and, and helicopters to see? Yeah, that's the whole point. It's, it's daytime, at night you've got your beacons. Um, the but, well, you've got incandescent beacons, LED beacons, uh, strobes. Uh, now, towers that have strobe lights on them are not painted. Uh, they run night and day. They cut the power back at night on the strobes because they're so bright. And then they increase it during the day. So you don't have paint on strobed towers on LED or incandescent beacon towers, they have to be painted and the beacons shut down during the day or only on at night. And there again, the number of beacons and sets of side lights or side marker lights will give you an indication of how tall the tower is. Um, 
actually up to 350 feet, you only have one beacon and one set of side lights. Um, after three, well, from 350 to 550, I think you have two sets of beacons and two sets of side lights. And from 550 to, I think, 750, there's three sets of, uh, three beacons. Uh, well, it's three beacon levels. They're making you put two beacons per level um, so that it, you, you can't, it cannot be blocked by the leg of the tower at a certain angle or something so you wouldn't see it. Yeah. Um, all that gets expensive. But most people don't realize like an incandescent beacon, that thing is 33 inches tall, oh. 13 inches in diameter, oh. and it will, the glass lenses on that Fresnel glass, so it primarily shines horizontally, not up or down. Uh -huh. They're round. Um, years ago, they had red blown glass filters uh, inside of a clear outer lens. Um, they were very fragile, the filters were. The outer glass is approximately three-eighths of an inch thick, and it's got grooves in it, you know, to make the Fresnel effect work. So this thing, if you're standing below a tower, you usually cannot see the beacons. Mm -hmm. You have to be off at a distance. Right. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, incandescent beacons are... You have two 620-watt bulbs in them, so they're, you know, 1,240-watt beacons. Um, that makes say wood. <laughs> wow. What? That's a lot of watts. Oh, it is. But you know, it's amazing. Now, that one of those beacons, an incandescent beacon, will draw uh, 10 amps of current. An equivalent LED beacon will draw 1.5 amps. Well, hello. Why is there a choice? Yeah, well, the cost. Uh, Those stations will not spend the money for an, uh, an LED. Yeah, I mean, it's... they are approximately four times the cost of an incandescent. Yep. Even at that, over a long term, they're the cheapest way to go. Yeah, it's a front end loaded and you look at the long term, it's what, what's it going to cost me right now? Mm -hmm. And that's what most of them do. Yep. Uh, obviously, some do the LEDs because they exist and they're out there, and it's a much uh, more durable, long term, mm -hmm. low maintenance thing than incandescents are. But uh, because when you look at the current cost you're paying for, plus X number of months, that they have to be replaced, that's a high dollar thing to send a guy out there to change those mm -hmm. bulbs out. And now you have to have two guys on site, not one. So you're having to pay two climbers, and um, in some cases three, because you have to have two on the tower and one on the ground. And that gets expensive. And those guys are very proud of what they do. So, you know, in the long run, the, the uh, LEDs are much cheaper, but they don't look at that. Yep.
make investments. You know, some things are just front end loaded, and, the, and all of the benefits come after that. Right. Oh well. Are you? The I'm sure y'all really wanted to know all that stuff, but um, now you know something that most people don't know. And, and you're absolutely right. We don't. Are you in the market? The Mets. Um, you can find those in a lot of your. Uh, I suppose home improvement stores would have them. Sometimes you even see them in um, dollar store type places. Kidding. Uh, but generally, a med will cost, or the real cheapies, you're probably looking at $2 and a half. The better ones on the internet, I've seen them up, you know, 8 9 $10, but that's ridiculous. Um, well, that's, generally, the upper end shouldn't cost any more than 5 or $6. And for painting a ceiling, it sounds like a better choice than a roller, and certainly than a paintbrush. Well, a paintbrush isn't too bad, though. But, okay. Well, you just can't get... You know, do any kind of fine detail with them, but where you are, are are doing a large flat area or something, I think it will work fine. But where you're trimming, you're gonna have to have a brush or something because a mitt is just too oh, no. bulky to, to get into places like that. But the whole point of them is to carry a lot of paint quickly. Mm -hmm. Sounds. I mean, it, it's amazing all the other things. Like I said, dusting, washing car. Um, and, and the wax, and, and all, you can think of other things too, but uh, they are great for that. Um, I, I'm going to put them on the, I go to a dollar store every once in a while. I really got some fun stuff in there. So I'll take a look and see if they've got them in the, in the whatever section. Right. Well, I look around for them, and uh, you know, you need to look at them and see what it's all about, whether you buy one or not. But um, I'm sure sometime in life you'll think of a lot of things you can do with it. And they're they're neat. I think of a half a dozen right now. I wish I had them. Okay, are you ready? I'll give it a shot, whatever. Oh, you're always so good. You, and you always tell me I give easy questions? Most of the time. <laughs> All right. In the voyage of the Scarlet Queen, Leah yeah. Lewis played the captain of the vessel. What was the captain's name? Ain't no way. I know what the vessel was, and I know about Elliot Lewis being the captain, but I don't know his name. I don't know his name. Do you mean to tell me I finally got Harwood on a yeah. yeah, occasionally you do. Chewie! Okay. Um, I'm going to give you another hard one. All right. All right. Who was Riley's friend and co-worker in the life of Riley? You talking about Gillis? Yeah! That was good. That was a hard one. Still. I still like Dig Digger O'Dell. Uh, Digger O'Dell, bless his heart. He is just so cool. What a great character he is. I was just, oh, yes. I was just digging around. I, I like him a lot more than a lot of the other parts that that um, John Brown played. And I know he played Gillis, too, and he was, uh, he was um, my friend Irma's boyfriend, I guess, and a bunch of other things. But, None of them will top Digger O'Dell. None. I agree. I agree. Well, I was just digging around looking for something. May I help? He's good. He is good. Okay. Surely, in this pile of stuff I have... Oh, I've got one for you this time. Okay. Whitehall 911. Yeah? That's what I want. Oh! I'm sorry. I thought you were going to ask me a question about it. Uh, well, I will. Yeah, I think it is strange. You know, we have 911 for an emergency number. Right. But you know that 
what's used in, in all other countries in the world, to my knowledge. No, I never knew that. What? Do you know what they use? Uh-uh. 999. That is not... I've always been curious why we didn't do the same. We didn't do the same because if somebody hit an incorrect number three times, they could wind up calling the emergency services. This way they have to deliberately go to a second digit. And that's why they did it that way. Okay. Doesn't that sound reasonable? I guess all the other countries didn't know that. <laughs> they didn't have us, Warwick. Okay. You know, I mean, some countries just have to make do with what they've got, and it's not us. That's yeah, well, that that gets back to the show I asked for, or the shows. Um, I'm curious how they came up with 911 on Whitehall like that, you know, back in the 40s. Yeah. And I, I don't. It, yeah. it must have been a phone number. Uh, it sounds like, you know, once I've heard it appears to be the, well, and I'll take that back. I don't know if that was a phone number or an address. Oh, Whitehall 1212. Um, I guess it was. Sorry yeah. about that. Yeah, I had 19, that part wrong. Yeah, it was 1951. That was an address, wasn't it? 1951. Don't know too much. I, I of the show came from the BBC, from England. That's the only one I know about. Yeah. Well, right. if they had one here, I didn't. I, I've never yeah. heard it. Well, they had several shows from England that came to the United States, like uh, the Black Museum. Uh, that, that was really a BBC production. Was watching while hosting it. Same thing with the Third Man. That was really a BBC production. Mm-hmm. And the Sherlock Holmes was Sir, Sir Ralph Richardson and Sir, Sir Don Gilgood in '55. That were from the BBC. Right. So. Well, I used to listen to BBC on short wave all the time, uh-huh. and then my receiver dropped dead, and that was quite a lot, and I understand they don't even have them on ATF anymore. Okay, Whitehall 1212 is the telephone number of... Okay. All right. All right. It's, it's been a long time since I listened to it. I just thought that would be cool. All right. Um, I also have the Black Museum. If I can't find Whitehall 1212, do you want the Black Museum? Oh, yeah, that'd be all right. <laughs> well, in that case, I have my assignment. I will find Whitehall 1212. I've never looked for it. I'm sure it's out there. Um, it was not a mystery by any means. But also on the BBC, he, he still had a show on there oh, probably 30, 35 years ago. But there was a band leader, Walter may have heard of him. Uh, his name was Victor Sylvester had a dance band, and he had an hour show on the BBC on Sunday night, or Sunday night here, it was, oh, I don't know, around 7 o'clock or so, was when we could hear it here, but uh, I looked up some stuff on him, and he had a rather interesting life, um, but I really liked his music, and um, guy and he went to England years ago, and he got, he found, I think, or got me three CDs of him, and I have misplaced them. Oh, dear. You ever, um, if you like that kind of music, uh, it's it's a 40s dance man type music. It's not, it's not my cuppa. Are you asking me to look for it? I'd be happy to. Uh, no, 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 I'm just talking. Yeah, it's not important. Okay. I just liked it. Okay, it's not on my list. I got lots of good stuff, but that's... Well, like I said, it was a, like a, a, a drama.
Bahama type radio show, so uh, I feel sure it probably isn't. I will, I will find your Whitehall one two one two, and I know I've I've heard the show a couple of times, and it's um, it's a good show. Oh, it is. I always liked it. You will have it. Well, I'll get off here and let y'all have at it. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I'll get a net and play with it and uh, get your booth set up for the mistletoe. Mm -hmm. so, um, so you'll be prepared and get tickets printed and all I that. Know. But you'll have to make signs, too. Patricia's going to be able to retire. Oh, yeah. She's going to be subsidized by mistletoe. That's Need earmuffs because of the sound yeah. out there. That's okay. Good. If she comes on one night and can't hardly speak because her lips are all swollen up, we'll uh -huh. know she's in business. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, deliver me. What a night this is. All right, go to your room. <laughs> I will do that. See you later. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. 714-545-2071 is our number. And we still have the Johnny Mathis CD question out there. Who rode a chestnut mare named Dusty? Somebody out there knows the answer. Somebody knows the answer. Do you know the answer to Patricia's trivia question? Hello there. Hello, Walden. Hello, Patricia. Hello, Jim. Hello, Jim. How are you? I'm doing fine. Good evening. Um, I'm, I was thinking as you were thinking about horses, you know, I was thinking about you know, when you think about the adult westerns, Gunsmoke, Have Gun, Will Travel, uh, Jay, uh, Frontier Gentlemen, and all that, and even the TV westerns, I don't remember on any of the adult westerns the hero ever naming their horse. Do you? On the adult westerns? Yeah, like Gunsmoke, like Have Gun, like, well, I guess Jimmy Stewart named his horse, and that was an adult western. Yeah. But most of your TV westerns, the, the, the grown-ups watched anyway. I don't remember the hero ever aiming their horse. Hmm. I don't know if you ever thought about that. Hmm. Oh, Jim, now you're making me think. <laughs> this is not good to make me think on a Saturday night. Um, I think you're right. I don't. I heard one time, a million squillion years ago, that Matt Dillon on the television Gunsmoke, named his horse Pablum. No, no, not Pablum, Oatmeal. I don't know. Well, maybe, you know, maybe Bob, our, our, our man from St. Louis, our Gunsmoke expert, might know the answer to that. But on the radio, anyway, I don't ever, I think once I remember Paladin saying, oh, boy, or something, you know, boy or fella to the horse, you know, to take it, when he wanted it to take it easy, you know, when they were, he no. was on a... That, that sounds more like an expression, though, than a name, doesn't it? Right, right. Um... Well, the frontier gentleman you sent me, Patricia, uh, JB named his horse. His horse had a name, and it was, but it was named before he got it. True, but he said did it. I don't remember that what episode that was, but he did name. He did have a name. His horse did. JB Kendall did have his horse did have a name. Yeah, uh -huh. but I forget what it was, and I sent the show to Walden too. <laughs> December fifteenth of nineteen fifty-eight. Yeah, a horse for Kendall. Oh yeah, that's right. That's right about the about the yeah. He, yeah. That's right, but I can't remember the name of the horse. It, it wasn't Gumdrops. I can. It was not Gumdrops. <laughs> well, it, the name of the show was a horse for Kendall. Yeah. Um, well, you, you know the funniest horse. Uh, we were talking about animated characters that we liked. Uh -huh. um, one of my favorites, as a child, was on the Captain Kangaroo show. He had a character named Tom Terrific. And what 
what did Tom Terrific do? He could turn himself into anything. He was a boy who could turn himself into anything he wanted to be to help get into a to solve the mystery of the case. He could turn himself into a horse if he wanted to. Well, how cool is that? Yeah, he could turn himself into a rocket ship or an airplane. And he had a dog named Mighty Manfred the Wonder Dog. And this was on Captain Kangaroo? The cartoon on Captain Kangaroo's show back in the 50s and early 60s when it was still a black and white show. I'll be dipsy doodled. <laughs> and, he, and, and whenever he would, Tom Terrific would always go, Terrific. <laughs> and he would, he had, he had, he had, he had a, uh, when he would think, he would, there was some kind of weird noise he would make when he was thinking, some kind of <laughs> Mike Jones type noise. When he turned himself into something, this bell would go, or something like that. Uh-huh. And, uh, the, the villain that Tom Terrific often had to fight was somebody named Krabby Appleton. <laughs> oh my goodness, what a creative collection. That's great. And, and, you know, one of my friends and I were talking the other day about some records we remembered as children, and this friend of mine said, you know, you'd think after all these years we'd be getting a life by now. <laughs> This is life. I mean, when you have when you have things like this to talk about, this is life. These are good pieces. That but yes, that's true. And just think, in re real life is depressing enough. That's <laughs> right. Please. So these things, and and you know, and of course, uh, Larry. There was another character on Tam on Captain Kangaroo, another cartoon character, a Western character named Larry Sam for a while, and he had a horse named Tippy Toes. <laughs> Okay, what did that horse do? You know, I don't remember. <laughs> but the villain was named Badlands Meanie. All right. Well, that one doesn't sound really as creative as Tippy Toes. Right. But Tom Terrific was fun, and it was a, uh, and I don't know, maybe you can find, maybe there's something on the Internet about him. I don't know. It was a Terry Tunes creation. Okay. All right, my homework, homework, homework. You guys don't even hang up, and I've got homework. <laughs> All right, Tom, terrific. Space cadet, no. Tom, terrific, and Manfred the Wonder Dog. Yep. Tom, terrific. We've got Wikipedia here. Okay. And it says, Tom, terrific was an early animated series on American television. This must be a Brit putting it. Um, putting up here, presented as part of the Captain Kangaroo children's television show, created by Gene Deitch. I, I have trouble with names sometimes. D-E-I-T-C-H, Deitch, D Gene Deitch, under the Terry Toon Studio, which was a subsidiary of CBS. I didn't know that. Um, Tom Terrific ran in a series of five-minute cartoons created specifically for the Captain Kangaroo show from 1957 to 1959 and was rerun on Captain Kangaroo for years thereafter. How about that? Drawn in, in simple style, it featured a gee whiz boy hero, Tom Terrific, who lived in a treehouse. Oh, I love it. I always wanted to live in a treehouse. That's my escape. I have this magical treehouse in, in my brain. Um, and could transform himself into anything he wanted thanks to his magic funnel-shaped thinking cap. Which was also, <laughs> my goodness, people got paid for this, you know? This is good. 
which was also which also enhanced his intelligence. Now, I mean, really, you know, a kid walking around with a funnel on his head, and he's supposed to. <laughs> okay, this is good. He had a comic. Lazy Bones of a Sidekick, Mighty Manfred the Wonder Dog, and an arch foe named Krabby Appleton. That's good. Whose motto was rotten to the core. <laughs> That's good. Other foes included Mr. Instant, the Instant Thing Kid, Captain Kidney Beans, Sweet Tooth Sam, and Candy Bandit. Oh, and Isotope Feeny? Isotope Feeny the Meanie. Huh. Uh, why, how would a kid... Oh, never mind. It was make-believe and play-pretend. This is good. So there you are, Tom Terrific. He's even good enough to be in Wicked... Well, I know there was... He, and I know that he uh, he had a song, too. I'm Tom Terrific, Great Adventure Lover, something like that. And, he, and then one of the lines was, If you see a rocket blast, musical chord, a sailing ship go sailing fast, a little tree or a flea, it's me. <laughs> this is great. This is good stuff to be reviewing with your friend, Jim. Yes, yes. <laughs> and and just think, at least on Tom Terrific, we may not be able to solve the Middle East problem, but Tom Terrific always could solve his. There you go. That's one way to look at it. A little bit of escapism there. And if your friend insists that you grow up, tell him... Call us. We'll straighten them out. Well, he, he was actually agreeing with me. He said, you know, you think we'd have a life by now. We were laughing about different records. Well, I mean, that's good. It's good. You have and I mean, you know, that, you know, we, you know like I look at it, we have such fun here on Yesterday USA is the way I look at it. There are a hundred, you know, I was listening to your interview with the author again tonight, and you were all talking about, he was talking about your, your ratings. And I got to thinking... There are fifty. There are a hundred radio shows where you debate politics. There are a hundred radio shows where the latest sports scandal can be debated. But there's one unique yesterday USA show where we can just have fun. I like that. It's true. Thank you for saying that. So you're going to be going away next weekend, huh, Malden? Yeah, um, I'm on a business trip to Seattle. Oh well, I hope you have fun up there. Well, I hope I bring home a couple of jobs. That's what I'm hoping for. So. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And you get, I hope you get to see Brian and everything. Yep, hope so too. But I'll be gone for four days. Well, it'll be fun, and, and, and I hope it. I hope it doesn't rain too 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 bad when you're up there. Oh. If it snows, that's okay. Uh-huh. If it snows. If it snows. If it snows. Well, you know what you could always, well, you know what the song, you know, you, well, you know, Perry Como always says, the bluest skies you ever see are in Seattle. Ah. One of his songs. Okay. Joke? Really? Yeah, it was, it was in 1969. It was the theme, he didn't sing the theme, but it was the theme to a TV show called Here Come the Brides. Oh. And Perry Como actually had a hit of it called Seattle. The song was called Seattle. My goodness. My goodness. <laughs> Okay, here's... Who's your favorite animated character? Hey, what? Who was your favorite animated character on television or in the movie? It's for Wiley Coyote from The Roadrunner. Yeah. Who always got stomped on. And Pepe Le Pew, the little skunk. Did you ever secretly, even though it would be, you know, blasphemy to the cartoon industry, did you ever secretly root for the coyote? Oh, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> all the time. I mean, you just knew that little brat of a... Of a, um, meep, 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 meep. His tongue would come out and go, yeah, meep, meep. 
Yeah. And beep beep. Yeah. Beep, 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 beep. <laughs> this is good. All right, Jim. Yes. Do you know the answer to who rode the chestnut mare named Dusty? Dusty. Uh, well, let me ask you. This. Are we talking about radio, movies, television? Radio. If we had an idea of, can you tell me that? Yeah, radio. Radio Dusty. 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 Hi. Come on, Dusty. <laughs> let me think now. Come on, Dusty. Um. Uh, well, then. Let me see. We, well, I know it wasn't. I, was, I know it wasn't. I know it wasn't Hickok, and I know it wasn't Hoppo Hoppy. Oh. Nope. Um. What's going on? I know it wasn't Red Rider. Nope. Uh, yes. Let's see. No, you're you're doing the Oscar Levant routine. I know it wasn't. Yes. Yes. There you go. Okay. Um. It was on radio. It was on radio. Was it? Was it a? Was it a? Was it a weekday series or a week? Oh no, no. We've. Okay. This is all you're gonna get. <laughs> okay. Radio show. Um. That's not there. Named Dusty. And what's really embarrassing, Jim. I have given this information at least three times in the last eight months. You have. I mm -hmm. have so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think of what Western, you know, what Western it might. Um, and she got a big time prize for this one. All those of you, all those you people out there, there's a big prize. Well, I don't know. I just can't think of it right now. Okay, well that. But I'm sure someone. You have a vast, intelligent audience, and I'm sure. And I'm sure someone in the audience will remember, and, and I'll probably remember when I hear it. It's just somebody's going to come up with it. Okay, that means I have to go to the regular questions, and I've got new questions today. Okay, I'll try. All right. How up are you on Lemon Abner? Uh, not too good. All oh, good, right. Good. 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 What good good? That's good he's not up on Robin Abner. You can stick him. You can stick him, Patricia. I don't want to stick him. I want him to win something. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And let George do it. What was George's last name? Valentine. There you go. George Valentine. You know, when you always hear, you know, always, uh, you always wonder. Now, you know, so often you hear the phrase "Let George do it," meaning let somebody else do it. Do you know if that actually originated with the radio show? For goodness sakes, I don't think I've ever heard that expression. Now, hold on. Oh, let George. George do it attitude. People talk about yeah. George do it attitude. I, I do not know. It sounds reasonable. Everything I wonder if that could have originated. Because, you know, you, you do know that uh, Wimp, he's a real Wimp. That was because of Wallace Wimple. Wallace Wimple was the inspiration for that expression, I've been told. And not Wimpy, the, the hamburger guy from Popeye? That's what I was told once. It had to do with Wallace Wimple. Not the, way he, the way he was around Sweetie Face, you know, he was such a cream puff around Sweetie Face, you know. It didn't come from Wimpy the Hamburger Eater? what I heard. I don't know if that's true. Maybe, you know, I could, my source could be wrong, but my, well, someone told me once it originated, that it was, it was Wallace Wimple. Well, it sounds reasonable. I always thought it came from the guy who ate the hamburgers in Popeye. Well, I didn't, I, 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 you know, I did not know that. His name was Wimpy. Well, I don't know. I just assumed that. I mean, I didn't know that for... But, but you, you would agree that Wallace Wimple would have been a good inspiration for that term. Sure. Sure, I like yours much better. Yeah. Well, being a Fibber McGee fan, I'm sure you would. <laughs> yes, I am prejudiced. You're right. I have a bias. All right. Now, here we go. I have shows that I know you would like. Okay. I don't know what they are unless you tell me. 
Okay, let's see, what am I in the mood for these days? Uh, let's see, how about... I'm trying to think what I'm in. How about... Mr. D.A.? Well, I think I could do that. Mr. D.A. Yeah, that's a good series. <laughs> Especially the Jay Austin ones. Especially the which ones? The ones with Jay Austin that were in the, the original radio series. The David Bryan ones were the more, were the soundtrack of the TV version done for radio, but Jay Austin was the main one who did radios, Mr. D.A. I will see what I can do. Um, I don't have them in my file, so I'm starting from scratch, and I'll make sure that I look for that in particular. Okay, you know, he was, in, he was the one, of course, inspired by Thomas Dewey. I'm really looking forward to hearing your show with uh, Claire on the 19th, or, or the... Yeah, the 19th of March, I guess, because that's going to be interesting, especially, I heard him mention he wrote an article about Nightbeat. Yes, he did. And that's going to be an interesting show to discuss, because I always thought that was one of the better radio shows. Frank Lovejoy just was so perfect in that role, and the stories were just so hard-hitting and, and well-written. They were extremely well-written. They were well-performed. I My ears have trouble with Frank Lovejoy, so it was not one of my favorite shows ever. It's not it's not one I would choose to listen to over some of the other detective shows. But was it but you, and that's mainly because not so much of the stories but because of because of the app because of his some people like certain actors and some Yes. That is that is correct. His um I I'm just not a Frank Lovejoy. I don't, I don't get Lovejoy with Lovejoy. Hey. He doesn't do anything to make my ears happy. In other words, you would you, to, to, to quote from another radio show, he would not be a matinee. I, to you, he would not fit the category of matinee idol of a million other women. This is correct. <laughs> this is correct. I am not backstage Mary. <laughs> I, you know, to me, though, I tell you one thing I always thought, one, and from, those, from the episodes of Backstage Wife I've heard, and maybe it's just the way the Hummers had the character written, and maybe it's the way the actor performed it, I, I don't think I would have, I actually don't think I would have liked Larry Noble very well. He always seemed hot-tempered and angry and, and jealous and angry, and he always seemed, I don't know, how Mary put up with him, I have no idea, but of course that's in the soap world, but my impression, at least the way the actor who portrayed him played him, he struck me as a man who would be very difficult to live with. That sounds reasonable. I've only read about the show. I've never taken the time to listen to any. Mm-hmm. So maybe now I have to go listen to them. Um, yeah, the whole run in 1950 was a sort of a murder mystery. Yeah, Larry was actually in jail, right, yeah, on some yeah, of those. Yeah, he, would, he had to go to... He, he, he was accused, and he was in the court trial. Hear me. Oh, yeah. Six months, Rod. <laughs> some of those soap opera husbands, though, were on radio were some of the most jealous... I mean... A classic example of that, if you want to hear a, a real example, I even used it in a women in media class as an excerpt. I, I did a presentation on radio soap operas for my college class, and my professor loved it, by the way, because she said most people never even think about radio soaps. But I chose, if you listen, if you have the day of radio from 1939, the WJSV air check from Washington, listen to Brenda Curtis, the soap from 10.15 a.m., where... The husband there is the, probably the most jealous husband I ever heard on us, on just from that one 15-minute show. He was just 
you know, he was just awful. How Brenda put up with him, well, she must have not put up with him very well because the show only lasted not even a year. <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> they wound up in divorce court. Well, you know, this is interesting because the, my perception of soap operas is, of course, they were directed to women. Mm-hmm. Right. And the women characters were the ones who were supposed to garner the sympathy and the empathy, which would mean that the male characters had to be doggies. They were. You know, that's one way to look at it. Uh, and, and the women were always the ones who were either victims or, or accused falsely of not being loyal. Sure. I get the, so the, the people who were listening could say, I know exactly what she's talking about. I think the true opposite of that would have been just plain Bill. Yeah, but for a barber, he, but I will say this, for a barber, he sure encountered a lot of adventure, didn't yeah. he, for yeah. a little town. <laughs> That's cute. But he was friendly. He was a very friendly barber. I mean, the way he, the way that uh, Arthur Hughes portrayed him was very, uh, very friendly and very warm. Um, and uh, but 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 Larry Noble to me had to be about one of the most jealous. And again, it's it's just from a few episodes I've heard. Um, and it it was. Um, but yeah, you know, women listened to it for twenty three years, so somebody must have liked the thing. Mm-hmm. She was the long-suffering wife, so it, it surely would have lasted. <laughs> that was, and you know, it was always, uh, but then again, you could say this thing about certain TV soaps, I suppose, where the characters are, you know, difficult to uh, deal with. Although on TV... You just think, that whole genre of entertainment is probably going to be gone in 10 years. Yeah, I've heard Jim Cox say that. Yeah, when I had Don Hastings on, who was just, you know, the hit TV series finally ended after 50 someone. He agreed that in 10 years, it'll be all gone. Yeah, there's only three left on ABC now. Yeah. There's one, I guess two left on CBS. I don't, NBC might have one, I don't, or two maybe, one. Well, I know ABC has three and CBS has two. But it's, you know, I guess, I guess the reality shows are, are have taken over and court, show, reality and court shows have taken over TV in the daytime. Dave, there's, not, there's not even any real game shows in the daytime anymore on the networks. It's uh, very bo- TV daytime, daytime TV is very tedious today. Well, one of the VCRs and T-Bone and all those internet devices we have have replaced a lot of that. So that way people who want to watch the get tape it and do it at their, at their convenience. Right. Well, the- and that have changed the whole TV watching dynamics. Well, I don't, the networks, you know, I don't think NBC, except for maybe one soap, I don't even know if NBC, after, from, the, from the Today Show up to the Evening News, I don't know if NBC even actually has a real television schedule or if the local stations just pretty much dominate with syndicated shows. Yeah. Um, and, of course, I, I, I get, and, of course, as we mentioned, there, it amazes me just how many courtroom shows there are on TV now in the daytime and they're just you know but I guess but I guess it's a trendy thing uh, there, there's nothing as good as Tom Terrific though Patricia <laughs> nothing as good his, his dopey dog what a stupid looking dog you show the picture of the dog yes he's pink yeah well I know you like peanut butter sandwiches well he's bigger than Tom Terrific and he's got feet that point in the wrong directions <laughs> Could you, well, while you're on there, could you also look up Lariat Sam while we, while we're talking about? Lariat Sam, okay. There's also a character on Captain Kangaroo. Um, Lariat Sam, 
dum dum. It says the adventures of Lariat Sam. That's what we're looking for. Right. Okay. Episode guide. Episode guide. How about that? And it said. Oh, it doesn't have any information about the show. Hold on. It's got all of these great episodes. What do you know? I wonder if you can listen. It, was this something that you had to watch or you could listen to? You watched it on, it was a thing on Captain Kangaroo. Oh, okay. The segment. Okay, I, I was, um, there, there were some links to click and I wondered if you would be able to hear it, but it's not, it's just information. Um, there's a TV series. Okay, let's see what we've got here. The Adventures of Lariat Sam. No information. Okay. Uh, they're all listed now. Hold on. On the TV. Terry Toons, the TV series. Ah, here we go. Uh, following the sale to CBS, the Terry Toon cartoons began showing up elsewhere on the network's schedule. Mighty Mouse Playhouse first appeared on December 10th, 1955 on CBS TV. And what we're looking for, Larry and Sam. <laughs> Um, Lariat Sam. Okay, Lariat Sam, a character co-created by Robert Keisham. Oh. Captain Kangaroo himself. That's, that's Captain Kangaroo. Um, co-created by Robert Keisham Associates, that's a corporation, appeared on Captain Kangaroo in September 1962. Lariat Sam was aided by his horse, <laughs> Tippy Toes. <laughs> Dear me. Oh, his horse, yes, well, his horses were pretty stupid looking too. Well, cartoon characters are supposed to be that way. Right. Yes. Short legs, a long neck, and 